Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Chase Doesn't Know podcast. As always, thank you so much for downloading and listening to these episodes. This is probably not possible, but I hope that you are enjoying them as much as I am. For this episode, I have my first return guest, my good friend Gavin Job. Gavin and I have been talking uh, the past couple months, and he said that he really wanted to get together and talk about the last year um, and how it has been for him and his team at Maribo. Um, if you've listened before or if you know Gavin, he you know that he is a chef and a restaurateur and uh, has been running a restaurant successfully through the last year uh, of COVID and things surrounding COVID. So uh, he really wanted to talk about what that's looked like for him and his team over the past year. Of course, um, as you can tell by looking at the length of this episode, we talked about a lot of other things as well. Um, some things that I thought were very interesting and very uh, valuable and beneficial to talk about um, related to Gavin personally and other people in the industry, and then also um, some stuff that I wanted to talk with him about. So I very much enjoyed hearing his thoughts on this. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Thanks again for downloading, um, and if you haven't, you should definitely look up Gavin on Instagram and his restaurant Maribo. They are in Covington. You should give them, uh, pay them a visit and eat some delicious food. The stuff that they're putting out is incredible. There's also a little tidbit in this episode about something that Gavin is launching very soon, if it's not already out. So uh, look forward to that and look for it on the interwebs. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy my convo with Chef Gavin Job. <laughs> How long have you been growing your beard? I haven't shaved it all the way off since 2016. Dang. But mustaches are the wave of the future. And the past, man. My dad <laughs> rocked one my whole life. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I haven't shaved mine since 16. Oh, really? Since Britt and I started dating, I've had a beard. Wow. I've not gone clean shaven. It's yeah. not about me, though. It's about you. Your beard's I mean, I, I trim it a lot because it <laughs> yeah. gets pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, Made it's it. normal status is is pushing a little on the wild side. Yeah. As compared to like Carl. Yeah. Well, Even when a, Carl's is long, it's very. We got to keep it tame. Tame. Right. Carl probably has a profession where people. <laughs> yes. He's on camera a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. He runs a TV show. I don't think that would work. Even if you are on camera a lot, that you can Unless definitely still have a well, wild beard. If I was doing what I do, like if I was a chef. Exactly. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But much longer than this, it gets kind of, it gets in the way of cooking. Like I had to, like a point Does where it? I was like, <laughs> yeah. I was curious, like, do you have to do any like, uh, m like maintenance before you get ready to do any real cooking? Like do you have to put it no, away? No, not really. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I brush it every morning to make sure that I don't have like loose hairs that'll fall out. But if one of these falls out and lands on a plate, you'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like one of these is sneaking into a plate or something. I've never had, we've had in five years, we turned five in June. So in almost five years, we've had four people ever have a hair in their food really and two of them i'm 100 it was their lied own. about it oh. <laughs> because it was the same people told us they had hair in their food like a month apart like the same couple and i was like it's only happened two other times ever and it happened to you guys twice a month apart <laughs> i don't believe it like i don't believe it it's not my hair none of my cooks have that hair i'm not gonna say it's yours or that you brought it here in your pocket but i have a strong belief that something's fishy. Yeah. They just wanted to get free food. Yeah. Do you like send hair? Do you, would you send a plate back if it had hair? I, I guess you're a chef. I should ask Carl. Carl, would you send a plate back if it had a hair on it? If you're in a, like a reputable restaurant? Uh, 
what, what's is that is that acceptable? Yeah, as you a can chef? send certainly. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have, and I also haven't. Like, you could I've certainly had, yeah. send it back. I've had for sure moments where I'm like, that's very likely my hair that's just falling falling out of my head. That just landed on his plate. I'll be halfway into a into a dish, and, and it's like it, yeah. there's a perfectly clean hair on <laughs> the side of my plate. And I'm like, I think I want to be grossed out, but also that's probably I'm a, just mine. I'm asking so, because I don't think like I know that I doesn't probably gross me out once. as much as normal people. Most people, like I wouldn't send it back. I would just keep. I'm it. pretty grossed out by hair not on people's heads. So you like would, you would definitely send it back. I but not that being it. said, I'm also uh, like probably not at a restaurant. Like, I would just take it out. Like, I'm not, I'm gross. Like, some people are grossed out by weird stuff, but I'm like, look, this fork that you're eating off of, like 50,000 other people ate <laughs> right. off this fork. It's like, true. I run through a, wa- a dishwasher. It's sterile. Like, this hair, the person probably washed their hair yesterday, right? It's mm-hmm. not that gross. Like, ugh. I'm, I don't want to touch it. Yeah. Like, but at the same time, is it worth me sending a dish back? I'm going to wait 15 more minutes to get my food. Definitely not. If it was like, you know a lot of hair <laughs> or if it had somehow gotten cooked into the food mm. like I've actually been uh, rolling out a pizza dough before and seen a hair in it that like, clearly like like an arm hair like one of my cooks had scooped the dough out of the mixer and like an arm hair gotten in and obviously that dough just gets thrown away mm-hmm. but like hair is on people and people cook mm-hmm. and unless we're in like a rubber suit some of it's going to happen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'm sure a lot more gets into dishes than people find. Oh, yeah. for sure. Especially like, <laughs> I mean, like, let's like be body hairs, like small stuff that you wouldn't even really notice. I'm sure it's, right. I'm sure it's relatively common. It's not, gotta, not something people want to think about. Pr- right, which proves, though, that you shouldn't be that worried about it. Yeah. Following on that, though, as a chef... I, I mean, I've worked in restaurants. Have you worked in restaurants? Never in the, rest- never in the food industry. I've taken all. dishes back to the, on behalf of my, you know, table. How do you, how does that, what's so your thoughts on that chef? If, if we make a mistake, 100%, I would like them to send it back. Like, let's say they've come in before and, uh, they have the, or like, for instance, we have a dish that occasionally I'll see it's about to go out and it's not right. And we'll remake it. Um, like if they have our crab spaghetti and I, and they send it back and they say, look, it's kind of oily. It's a little oily. And I'm like, all right, let me take a look at that. I look at it. It is, in fact, oily. It's oily because one of the cooks didn't prepare it properly. Um, They didn't emulsify the sauce the right way, Um, which means that the oil and the fat separate, or the water and the fat separate, and so you get a broken sauce that's oily versus a really creamy, nice sauce. Um, Somebody sends something back for that. I'm happy they did because I want them to have the dish the right way. the thing that's kind of frustrating is when somebody just sends back a dish because maybe it's not their favorite. Like, I don't really like this that much. Or they didn't understand it in the or first place. Or they didn't understand in the first place. Um, you know, oftentimes, like, so we have a crab, the crab spaghetti, for instance. A lot of people think spaghetti is spaghetti noodles and red sauce. Our menu has a description that very clearly states that it's crab meat and butter and parsley and this and that. And our servers are also told to explain to people. But somebody will just be like, oh, I'll have the crab spaghetti. And it comes out, and they say, I thought this was going to be red sauce. I don't want this. Well, it's an $18 pasta dish that I can't resell to anybody else. And then they have to get something else, and I make that. Uh, That's a little frustrating, you know? Um, Or 
or if just somebody says, I don't like this, but the dish is perfectly prepared. If I go to a restaurant and order something I don't like, I just don't order it again. You know, this, this isn't, um, you don't get to do taste tests in restaurants, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, but you know, we, we honor it anyway. It's right. frustrating. Yeah. I wish people wouldn't do it, but, um, no, we'll, we'll eat the cost on something like what that. I, what I was thinking about, and I'll let you have your, your interview in a second. No, chance, you take what I was thinking about was the fact that, you know, you go to a restaurant and steak it and cooked to your perfect medium. And, you know, but nobody ever wants to send it back. They're like, oh, you're going to spit on it. I mean, what, I, I guess. You should definitely send back a steak that's not cooked properly. I mean, that's, to me, especially, you know, you need to be within reason, you know, right? right. If you ask for a medium rare steak and it's pretty close to medium rare, you should probably just eat it. Right. Unless you're at a, if you're at a steakhouse where you're paying $150 for that steak, you should send it back until it's absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. But there's an expectation level with everything, right? I ate a T-bone steak at Waffle House this morning <laughs> uh, and I ordered it medium and it was gray all the way through, <laughs> but it was $9 and I was at Waffle House. You get what you pay for. I didn't even know they had T-bone steaks. Yeah, oh days. man, they got steaks. I don't ever yeah. get it. It's the all-star all well, the way. But. I normally do that, but I'm not eating carbs this month. Uh, all right. I have a standard order. I've ordered at Waffle House for like 16 years. I don't even have the menu. Can I get but the Gavin please? Today was the first time I've literally not ordered that Damn. ever. That I can remember. I've been to Waffle House one time and not gotten the all-star special. Yeah. I get the all-star three eggs over medium, hash brown, smothered, covered. I get a pecan waffle. I get a chocolate milk, a water, and then uh, I get bacon, wheat toast. And then for starters, if I've been drinking, I also get their classic uh, double cheeseburger. It's this little bitty thin cheeseburger thing, like one and a half ounce patties. Dang. That's like smaller than a McDonald's burger, but it's greasy and delicious. Dang, it's so this is good. bad. We got to get off. I know we have a chef, but like I've been doing this meal plan for a week now and it's not eating anything good. Basically it's like, yeah. so I'm just like, oh, I want to go to Waffle House right now. I'll just yeah. like pig out on that. Um, okay. So glad that, uh, Carl brought up these, like these specific chef questions because I'm putting you, I'm throwing you to the wolves now. Uh, we talked last week about how you wanted to start your own podcast that would be, and I'll let you give an, a, a better explanation, but a brief intro is talk about just short two to five minute topics and a wide range of topics, but a lot of them obviously be, would be catered to the industry that you're in. And it would just be like one topic, one episode. So one topic could be hair in your food or hair on your plate or something like that. But so we just did episode one. I don't know, I don't know where you've right. been. We just did it. We'll just cut that out and put it. <laughs> um, so tell me, like, what what you your um, your scheme behind what you want to do with it? Because I was pretty pumped up hearing yeah. you tell me about it. So the idea came about just because I listened to a good bit of podcasts and I listened to a good bit of chefs podcasts, and the parts that I enjoy the most are when they talk very specifically about something, um, whether it be a restaurant they ate at a particular type of kitchen tool they really like to use. Um, but a lot of that is just like the tiniest part of the podcast. And then there's a lot of long form discussion about stuff that I'm not that interested in. Mm -hmm. And I would love to look at a topic that says my favorite two kitchen tools that aren't a knife and it's three minutes long. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd love to listen to that or what I think the perfect waffle house order is (laughs) and why. 
Um, and and I'm, I'm a very uh, opinionated person, and everybody that knows me knows that. But I'm also, like, I'm passionate about stuff that maybe might not seem that important to most people, but I've got strong beliefs about why I'm passionate about those things. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I can talk with passion about um, why I like a particular type of cheese grater over another. Uh, and there's probably going to be like an anecdote or a story that goes along with it. And uh, I think some people would find that interesting. Um, and other stuff that I really want to do is uh, shine a little bit of a light on restaurants in a way um, that most restaurant reviews don't. More of a cook's or a chef's perspective, more in-depth about the food, and more in-depth about uh, the food from, a, from a, not only a chef's perspective, but a person who loves restaurants and this industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, before I was ever a chef, when I was a kid, it was, you know, what do you want for your birthday? And I would just want to go eat at a really nice restaurant instead of like a present even. Mm -hmm. Like, can we, you know, when I was young, there wasn't the internet. We didn't know all the stuff we knew. So everything I knew about restaurants was from, maybe I saw something on TV, but most likely it was a magazine or a book that talked about Commander's Palace in New Orleans or in another place like that. And uh, now there's so much out there. There's so much information out there, but most of it is from uh, people that, chefs don't really care what they have to say mm. and not in a mean way, but like <clears throat> the, uh, it just opens it up to anyone putting their opinion. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and not, not that their opinion is invalid, but they're not going to think about the same stuff. They're not going to address the same stuff that I'm going to address or that another chef would address. Mm -hmm. So when a chef comes to your restaurant, like if you know, a chef's coming to your restaurant, you know who they are. You're excited to, for them to try your food and if you had to say, um, oh, my chef friend's coming to the restaurant, what am I going to send him out to eat? You might send him out different food than you sent out somebody else mm -hmm. because he's going to want to see the stuff that's maybe a little more interesting mm -hmm. or that you're doing different than other people. Um, and for me, when I did a restaurant, when I'm looking through a menu, I'm looking for stuff that I haven't seen before. Or if I have seen it before, maybe they say, look, we know that this is chicken fried steak, but trust us, this is the place you got to get chicken fried steak. Then that's the same thing too, you know? Mm. And I love all types of restaurants. You know, I want to see, I've said a bunch of times, you know, um, there's mom and pop restaurants that are, uh, in that don't do anything different for 50 years. And there's just as much awesomeness in that as there is in the like cutting edge, chef who's pushing the boundaries and doing different stuff and mixing flavors in ways that maybe you haven't tried them before. Um, both important, uh, because one's one doesn't exist without the other. You can't change and push stuff without having the standards and the, mm -hmm. the, the first, first stuff. But I just want to talk about that. I love talking about food. When I go out to eat, I try to go with people that also like to talk about food and you know, we can sit there and that's what happens in our kitchen. You know, like when we're working on features for the weekend, 
we're working on, we're just sitting there prepping in the morning. A lot of the conversation revolves around what we've eaten, what we want to cook, what kind of products we're getting in. Oh, we're getting in some lamb. You ever worked with lamb T-bones before? No, I've only ever worked with loins and chops. Yeah, so the T-bones are great for this. And then you, you already know, oh, this restaurant I went to had the most incredible lamb. And then, oh, yeah, I worked at a spot. We did this lamb neck dish. And it goes like that. And it's, I could talk about that with people all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, this is what I've always done. And it's, I, I don't like to sit there and say um, it's an art form because it sounds just kind of silly. But at a level, it is like you're creating something, you know, you hand five chefs the same five ingredients and tell them to make you a dish. Um, You're going to get five different dishes. And it's just like if you hand an artist canvas and paint, you're going to get different stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there's a little more constraints when it comes to food because it is subjective. But the one thing that isn't subjective is it has to taste good Mm -hmm. where art can vary wildly. Somebody can love something. Somebody could hate something. Um, if you burn a piece of food, nobody likes that. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, so there are some, there's more constraints, but I like that. I like working in the, in the constraints of that. But as far as the, the podcast, I want to talk about food. I want to talk about, um, industry topics that I think are under, underrepresented. A lot of stuff came up this year, uh, with COVID and all these things that were just incredibly, uh, frustrating at times. It's like, man, I wish I could say something about this to somebody. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could say it in a way that people would get it because when you're trying to explain it to a person standing at the front door of the restaurant, it's, it's harder Yeah. versus I would love to sit here and say for three minutes in a way, uh, that's calm and collected, explain why we do something this way. Mm -hmm. Or I would love to, I would love to call out maybe some people that I think are supposed to be leaders in the industry that in my opinion, kind of copped out on certain stuff this year. Um, you know, or I would like to talk about policy, like let's talk about the minimum wage stuff and what, what I think is good or bad and, and why, why I think it would be beneficial as long as there are some, um, you know, kind of restrictions put in place. Uh, cause I do, I mean, look, we pay, well at our restaurant we don't pay a lot like if the $15 minimum wage went into place it would it would be bad in certain ways because they talked about getting rid of the tip credit uh which Mm -hmm. means that like right now if i have a server that makes 213 an hour as long as they make five more dollars in tips or that minimum wage i don't have to pay anything extra well all of my servers make over 15 an hour after tips so that wouldn't be a problem but they're talking about eliminating the tip credit which means that I have to pay servers $15 an hour plus they get tips. So now they make $35 an hour mm. or then. So what really happens is you have to raise your prices to pay them, basically eliminate tipping. And it just makes it weird mm-hmm. because people have been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Tipped employees most likely would rather stay tipped. Uh, none of my servers would rather make 15 bucks an hour yeah. than tips. Yeah. Um, you know, and then at the same time, if there's like a high school kid who's washing dishes one night a week, I don't know that he needs 15 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not raising a family. He's not supporting anyone. This is just for him to get some work experience. Mm-hmm. And for you to say that, you know, 
Like I think there should be some allowances for kids under the age of 18, people that don't, that don't have any dependents. Um, considering the minimum wage is supposed to be something that's there to make sure people are making a livable wage. Mm -hmm. Well, if you live on your parents' dime and you drive a car your parents paid for, you know, maybe we should discuss it's a slightly lower rate. Mm -hmm. Just, and at least, at least uh, all this needs to be phased in too, right? But man, McDonald's already has robotic fry fry flippers and stuff. We're never going to be able to do that. So it really only affects small to medium-sized restaurants. Right. And not the big ones. And not the big ones. And, uh, but, look, I'm all about it, man. Like, most of my cooks make that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have some, some younger people that work for me that are under the age of 18 that don't. But I don't think I have a single 18-year-old that makes less than 14 already. And then, you know, I have cooks that make as high as 20 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. I have several people that are salaried. We just started an insurance program for our people. So, I mean we want to do all these things. And I think that there's ways that they could help restaurants make stuff better for their people mm-hmm. without just saying raise the minimum wage. Yeah. I, I think it's just a, it sounds really good, but I don't think it actually helps most employees. Yeah. I think it, that would be, I think stuff like that would be super interesting to listen to and also in, you know, informative and I think benefit, bring a lot of value because I mean, like you just said, that there's a whole lot of, especially in political, the political realm, where there's a lot of topics that sound good to talk about and plans sound good, but there's very little um, talk about the practicality or the practical effects of what they're going to do to people, yeah. and especially to business owners like you, because, uh, you know, m- debatable if it's the most important thing in life, but the economy is pretty dang important for the well-being of people living in this country and any country. Um, so it would be good if the top, you know, talking about the practical, practical, I don't know if that's the right word, the actual effects of things like that would be good. And also you mentioned earlier, um, I was just get, I wanted to interject, but you, uh, were talking about something that I didn't want to interrupt, but you mentioned that you could talk about the cheese graters and talk like for a few minutes on why you like one cheese grater over the other. And, uh, and I totally agree. I think people would find that interesting because that's why I enjoy listening to podcasts usually is to hear people. And why I started this podcast is to hear people talk I would about listen to that podcast stuff like that right now. Yeah. I almost wanted to ask you, I was like, what is it? People are so invested into one thing that I don't know anything about, but they talk about it and it's interesting. Yeah. Um, as long as they can talk well, which you can, but <laughs> some people you can't, it's hard to, hard to listen to them talk, but like Joe Biden, but, uh, no. <laughs> Are there podcasts? And Donald Trump. Donald Trump was hard to listen chef to. Chef podcasts where they just talk about knives and nerd out about knives? Not really. really? It would, I'm sure I say that. I don't know. I listened to a couple. I got very disenfranchised with one chef, or with a lot of chefs this year. I lost a lot of respect for a lot of very big chefs this year based on their response to the whole crisis mm-hmm. that happened. <clears throat> and I just... Like, I just stopped listening to a couple of them. Like, really? I don't have... I don't, I don't care what they have to say about anything. And yeah. I, I'm a little bummed out because I liked a lot of stuff they talked about, but I just, I lost so much respect for them and the way that they handled what I consider to be the most important aspects of this business that I just don't really want to hear what they have to say about yeah. anything else. The, um, I, I had a few things I wanted to talk about, um, but the uh, kind of the, 
uh, one significant reason that we are getting together again right now, besides talking about your podcast, which is going to be legit, uh, was to talk about the last year and since the whole COVID, just everything, it's yeah. almost to the day really from the yesterday, shutdowns. last yesterday. year, we got the word to lock down and, um, that was, yeah. So are you, so a little bit of structure to it. Um, uh, so you can help me walk through the last year for you. We did a podcast. The first podcast we did was like November, 2019. So, um, talk to me about where you were as a chef and also as a business owner at the beginning of 2020, like what were your kind of plans for the year and changes? Or tell me where the restaurant was, I guess, right at the beginning. Um, it sounded like you were doing great when we talked first time and you're kind of getting to that point because I re-listened recently, but it sounded like you're kind of getting to that point where you were starting to bring in profits and were able to kind of alleviate debts and things yeah. like that. So, so tell end me about of, that stuff. So end of 2019, we were finally you know, starting to, I think, hit stride. It kind of felt like we could. And just so people recall, this is like four years in, right? Yeah, we opened June 28th, 2016. And so through the end of 2019, you're operating break even or losing money. And yeah. You're, okay. All right. Yeah. And just so I'm understanding you know, the struggle. Yeah. I mean, the, the first, business owner. first three and a half years were, I mean, not good. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, and it didn't mean it wasn't mm -hmm. because we weren't trying, um, we didn't know as much as we thought we knew when we opened. I learned, I've learned so many valuable lessons and also become a, like a better chef, better leader, all these things. But um, the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, you know, it felt like there was not necessarily a light at the end of the tunnel because it's never, the tunnel doesn't end in this, mm -hmm. but we weren't still in the dark. We could start to see stuff. We were starting to get, you know, um, starting to feel like what we were doing was working for the first time. Like, Oh, people are starting to appreciate what we do. Um, more, we we're starting to see more regulars. We're starting to get a lot of people coming in that we see on a, on a regular basis. We see the same faces, the families coming in. Um, we also were, I believe yeah, in the process of doing the patio, covering our patio right, at the yeah, time, you were, which yeah. was a very big, uh, cost mm -hmm. but I was like I think this is gonna really work out you saw it'll, the future yeah it'll be the Possibly. biggest it'll be the <laughs> biggest covered patio in Covington it's gonna double our seating space we'll be able to do events and we did like two events three events and then we were starting to book all kind of events for the spring really and it was really looking up and we finished so 2019 we beat 2018 right around 16, 17% okay. year over year, which we were so excited about. It was like, man, we crushed last year. This year is going to be even better. And then January, February, we were up like 25% over the previous year even. We're Dang. like, man, this is going to be the best year ever. Yeah. And then beginning of March was awesome. And we, we're, we got parties booked. I mean, I probably had... I think I had three or four wedding receptions booked coming up. I had multiple birthday parties. I had rehearsal dinners and all stuff that we never could have done before. But now we have this patio and we're going to do this. And then um, full steam ahead. Everything's going great. We're actually seating people in the patio. And then March 14th, you know, I guess we start seeing this stuff on the news. We start getting a little nervous, but everybody thinks it's going to blow over, mm -hmm. you know, where I'm having staff 
meetings every day, which we already do pre-shift meetings. And I'm telling people, you know, look, we're going to, we're going to stay on top of this. We're not going to any, any news we get, but it was very much, it was, nobody knew anything. Mm -hmm. March 14th, boom, shut down. Um, and what did that exactly mean for, for us you? at the beginning? It was, you know, obviously I remember two weeks to flatten the curve. The first thing for us was restaurant dining rooms are closed. You can do curbside only, um, or you can do to go only. And did you do those things at the time yes, already? So we, we did, but not much of it. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, it was never a priority <laughs> for us. Right. Um, we don't use any of the, um, delivery, delivery services. services. Yeah. Um, hyper anti delivery service. I think, uh, that the system is, uh, predatory towards restaurants and that it doesn't work. And, um, if you manage to make a profit on that and you have a restaurant, kudos to you, but I couldn't figure that out. And, uh, we were just very honest when we got rid of waiter, we basically made a post on Instagram and just said, we're getting rid of waiter. It costs us too much money. If you want to see us succeed and you want to eat our food, you have to just call us and order it and pick it up. And, uh, you know, we weren't doing a ton of waiter sales though. It wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we were like, all right, you know, at first the f immediate thought is, man, every, like I'm going to lose everything. Uh, how is a restaurant? And I'm like two weeks, but, but of course I go, I don't think it's going to be two weeks. Like uh, the, the doomsday scenarios start playing in my head. I'm like, I'm like, how long can this go on? Like how long could if we, cause some people are just, they're going to close and they're mm -hmm. going to ride it out and just wait and see what happens, mm -hmm. which was what a lot of restaurants and chefs did. We're just going to close and we're going to see what happens. And I was like, I don't think I can afford to see what happens. Like I don't have that much money in the bank. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was like, how many months of rent can I pay? You know, if I stopped everything, if I cut, fired everybody, laid everybody off, there's no payroll. What, how much money do I have? How much can I cover? And I'm like, maybe four months, you know? But then what after that, Yeah, you know, what happens if it goes longer than that? And so first day, you know, we only have one phone line, phones ringing off the hook, trying to do to go orders. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure out how do we do this? So immediately I was like, look, we have to condense our menu. Our menu has got to get smaller. It needs to be easy for us to do. It needs to be more streamlined, run a product mix, which is just a thing that tells us what we're selling the most and least of everything on the bottom half the page is gone. We're not going to stock that anymore because we're going to have food going bad. We don't have as much people to like, we have to figure this out. And immediately also alcohol sales are gone because at the beginning right, yeah. you couldn't do alcohol to go cause it's illegal. Right. Um, and so alcohol sales make up, you know, 35, 40% of our sales. Dang. And so that's, and also there's almost no labor associated with it. Mm -hmm. So even though your, al your alcohol sales drop off, there's not a labor drop with it where when your food sales drop, you typically have a labor drop with it. Um, so, you know, that happens. And then the first, you know, we were doing 20, 23,000 bucks a week. First week of curbside only, we do like $10,000. And I'm like, mm. I'm like, this is bad. I was like, but this is, livable I get like we can survive for a while on this but then you know we're, I'm going by like a cheap burner phone at boost mobile and we're posting <laughs> like call this number and because uh, I didn't know if it was better to try to set up multiple lines mm -hmm. so we had it where you could text us orders and we're trying to figure it out like every day we were changing the way we did it and then f about a week in we um, built 
an online ordering system through, so we use a square point of sale. Mm -hmm. They have a partner <clears throat> called, I think it's Weebly and you can build an online ordering system that syncs to your point of sale. So people can get online. It's mobile friendly. They order the food, they put in their payment and it, uh, printer a ticket prints in the kitchen cool so there's nothing you have to do in between yeah and then they just put and you you have a preset time you say food will be ready for we have a default time of 30 minutes um so it allows us to in case there's a bunch of other stuff going on we can get it ready and then you just put your car description in the bottom you pull up in the spots we have out front and the hostesses grab your food and run it out to you and there's no need for anything else you can still call and place orders but we try to tell, we try to push people to online mm -hmm. because that way a person's not sitting on the phone for five minutes, mm -hmm. running a card, all that stuff. Cause we still, somebody else is trying to call to make a reservation. Somebody else is trying to call for a party a month from now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's still a little bit of a thing. We actually incentivize people, all of our online orders. If you use the code online, they're 5% off anytime, all the time. Um, cool. Because we want to push people that way. And then um, that, was probably the biggest game changer for us um, that made it and I have to give my partner at the time a ton of credit for it she did an amazing job with it but um, got that set up and it became much more streamlined and then we had to figure out uh, and also we used to never do oh we actually lowered all of our prices too at the beginning of really? COVID. yeah I was like look everybody's hurting mm -hmm. and I think if we can make ourselves more affordable I think that's better for us. Um, so all of our pizzas became $12 instead of anywhere from 12 to 15. Mm -hmm. um, we added a hot chicken sandwich to the menu because I kept driving by Popeye's every day and has a line wrapped around the building. Um, <laughs> I, we still lowered, have, I haven't been able to try that yet, but well, that's worth it. Sandwich. We lowered uh, for $4. It's the best value. And $4? It's three ninety-five. Wow. It's the best $4 chicken sandwich in the world. I believe you. Um, and that's, and I mean, I could do a review on that too, but it's way better <laughs> than Chick-fil-A. Sorry, Chick-fil-A. Um, but um, we did that. We lowered our prices we uh, consolidated the menu. We lowered, I mean, we lowered the prices pretty much on everything. Mm -hmm. And then we also started honoring our happy hour pricing to go. So happy hour for us every day means that pizzas from three to six are seven bucks, all of them. And then all day on Wednesday, they're seven bucks. We never honored that to go before because it's not quite a loss leader. We don't really lose money on it. We don't make a bunch of money on a $7 pizza. Um, and so we were like, you know what? We're going to honor that to go too because they obviously can't get it dine in. And uh, the first like couple of happy hours, people were like upset that it wasn't available. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, you know what? Uh, yeah, let's just make it available. Let's just try it out. If it if we're losing money, if it doesn't work, we'll change it. But we decided that basically every day we were willing to change everything we did. Mm -hmm. It's like if this doesn't work, we'll try it for three or four days. If it doesn't work, we'll do something the complete opposite. Mm. Um, but so what were you, what was your thought process during all this? Like you finish a day and you possibly, you potentially just changed a ton of stuff. You go to bed that night thinking about the next Oh, I day. didn't sleep for a, for a while. That mm. was the first month was, um, exceptionally stressful for the first time in my life. I went to a doctor and asked him for anti-anxiety medicine really? medication. Yeah. I was taking a, and just at night. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. I would the first four nights of the lockdown. I probably slept 30 minutes a night. 
Like Dang. I would just lay there and I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, I'm checking the bank account. I'm doing like pen and paper calculations on mm-hmm. this. Can I, and I, I, I committed to the very first thing I committed to was I'm not going to lay off anybody that doesn't, that wants a job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep people working that want to work. Um, even when the unemployment stuff came out, some of my people, um, didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep working. Um, some of them, it would be taking a pay cut to go on unemployment. Some of them, uh, you know, just wanted to work and needed to work. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I just said, I don't feel it's right to just tell everybody, Hey, sorry, you don't have a job anymore. Yeah. Um, because I didn't, you know, we didn't know how long unemployment was going to last. We didn't know how much it was going to be for. And I just said, if I can, if I can keep this place going with the people that want to be here, then that's what I'm going to commit to do. And, um, so it was just felt like a tremendous weight. Like, you know, I have a staff of 35 people and I know not all of them need us, you know, like I said, several of them are high school kids. You know, we, in fact, we laid off two kids. We laid off two high school kids at the beginning of all of it that both live with their parents. Mm. And I was like, look, man, like, I don't really need a dishwasher right now. We can keep up with the dishes. But as soon as we have shifts again, you, you can come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people, you know, we had a few people that uh, live with like elderly parents. They didn't want to work um, or that lived with like sick family members or whatever. And so those people... I laid off so that they could qualify for unemployment. Mm-hmm. And then people that did want to work though, we worked and we did everything we could. So we'd have two or three servers working in the morning and they would fold a million pizza boxes. And, uh, you know, uh, then we would, it was a, it was a weird deal because we had to figure out all kind of different stuff. Like all of a sudden we became a drive through. Right. And that's not what we've ever done before. And then a lot of the food, we kind of decided we didn't want it. We did. We took a few dishes off that we decided weren't really that good to go. Mm-hmm. This isn't that good if you eat this an hour from now, right. or, you know, or even 40 minutes from now. And so we did as much as we could to make it, um, the best thing possible in the situation we're in. And, but yeah, I mean, at first it was just, it was just constant trying to figure out something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so, even so- at that rate, I said, you know, like for me, there was never an option to go out of business. It's like, this is everything I have. Every dollar, the la- also the last four years of my life, everything is tied up to this. I'm not going out without like, there'll be nothing left of me if this place closes. Mm-hmm. Like I'll have put it all out there. And so it was just a matter of constant uh, evaluation of how that day went. And then is there stuff we could do to make it better tomorrow or to maybe be busier tomorrow or to, um, cut costs tomorrow without ever sacrificing the product. And another thing I was scared about, you know, some people closed, but I was terrified of, you know, if we close the momentum that we have now that we just got, we just got momentum. If I close, people are going to forget I exist. People Mm. are going to make new habits. They're going to do another pizza spot down the road that's open. And then, Two months from now, if we reopen, when all that happens, what happens if we're not in their routine anymore? And for me, it was just, you know, and, I, and there's also the struggle of, is this thing really dangerous where I'm putting my staff's lives at risk 
by being open. Mm -hmm. And so I had very candid discussions with everybody, you know, like, how do you feel about this? And it was weird because for the first time ever, I'm trying to be like a medical professional, <laughs> you know, because people want to ask, they're asking me what I think about stuff. I'm like, I don't know. It changes on the news every day. Yeah. I have no idea what to think. Um, but we ever since the government mandated restrictions for restaurants came out, like we followed everything to the T because, you know, I don't want to take blame for anything that goes wrong with a guest. And I also don't want to, I don't want some guests to feel unsafe or uncomfortable. So, you know, the mask mandate for us, there's a mask mandate. You're wearing a mask. Our whole staff wears a mask. Our guys working in front of an 800 repeats oven wear a mask. I'm walking around wearing a mask. We take your temperature when you walk in the door. Our tables are six feet apart. All that stuff has been in place and it will stay in place until the restrictions are lifted. And I've had to tell a bunch of people that they have to wear a mask and they get mad and stomp their feet because they think that they're a patriot for not wearing a mask. And I just tell them every time, like, look, man, this ain't my rules. That lady over there, that 75 year old lady that's eating in my restaurant, she'd feel a lot more comfortable if you're wearing a mask, which is why we're all wearing masks. Like, I don't know if they do anything. I don't care if they do anything, if I'm honest. I just know that for me to operate uh, legally with the proper permits, mm -hmm. this is the rules we're supposed to follow. And so we followed all that. And uh, once we could start seating on the patio, actually the, the next phase, mm -hmm. once we got past just curbside. So that was, we were doing enough where I said, all right, we can sustain like this for probably a year curbside it won't be great mm -hmm. but we could start doing alcohol to go that bump sales up a little bit but still most people weren't buying alcohol at restaurants because it's more expensive mm -hmm. it's by the grocery store which are wide open um <laughs> right and then you know that didn't bother me at all and then um and then we could do people could eat outside but you couldn't have a server so they had to order the food to go we had a table set up on the patio. Oh, that was the rule. That was the second uh, rule. You can have a server walking up to you. Okay. you. You could put the food on the table. You could call their name or their number. They could come grab the food. All had to be in to-go stuff. Mm -hmm. They could take it back to the table and eat it. And then when they left, you could go bust the table and clean it. Hmm. And that was it. Like, that was the second little phase. Yeah. And I don't remember. Where about was that? That was about a month in. Okay. So we did curbside only for three and a half weeks or so. Then they let us do that. Then they switched to... Um, I forget the next step, but it was basically, yeah, that's right. The next thing was outside only, but you could have a server, mm -hmm. but it was still outdoor seating only. And then it was just tricky because we have to play police all the time, mm -hmm. like the, the restaurant. And I don't want to tell people, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. And people don't necessarily all know the rules. So like, why, why isn't, why don't I have a server at my table a lot? I'm like, well, we only have two servers because that's all we can have for anybody to make any money right now. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to make this work the best we can. Um, but we're also doing a ton of to go stuff and it's just, it was tricky. It was, it was, it was a very unfun time to be a restaurant owner. Mm -hmm. All the stuff we like about restaurants, talking to guests, yeah, making relationships, all that's gone. And it's just the hard parts. And it's also hard parts you've never done before. Yeah. So, we're all of a sudden we're drive through and then we're trying to figure out that we're doing all this to go stuff we've never done. And it's just a lot of, and on top of that, it's trying to apply for PPP loans, trying to apply yeah. for EIDL loans. And without, I mean, luckily my mom 
basically came and did paperwork for like a week and a half at the restaurant and helped me out because I was swamped all day, every day, just trying to do Mm -hmm. the day to day of the restaurant. I mean, people that managed to pull that off on their own, like incredible. I mean, you're in, you're in the hospitality business. You're in the business of relationships and, and entertaining people in a sense. I mean, and when you get all of that stripped from you and you can only be a food service, yeah. Mm-hmm. That had to be like a total yeah, like, mind shift. And it drained it drained the staff too. Like nobody They don't like that either. Was having a good time. You know, and we did our best. Oh, oh, in the middle of all this, the middle of summer, this was great. Our building <laughs> got struck by lightning, fried Dang. fried three of our AC units, and we didn't have AC for six weeks inside the restaurant. Dang. The first three weeks of it was still patio dining. The second three weeks of it, we had people inside. We had to rent. I was renting uh, portable AC units mm-hmm. that tie into the ceiling with exhaust and all that stuff. Yeah, I think I was there. And they would pull. When you yeah, I mean, that. it was terrible looking. We had we had them going out of walls and through the ducts. It looked like a robot factory in our <laughs> in our restaurant. Those and like temporary ones you rent for like a like tents. Like yeah, like up. that. But we had them inside the restaurant. We had three of them rented, and I was spending you know, a thousand dollars a week on that. Dang. No man, more than that. 1500 bucks a week on that. And, and it, it cooled the restaurant in the morning. It was nice. By the time it was middle of the day, mm-hmm. it, it was still 85 degrees in the restaurant. And I would have people complaining about how hot it was. And I'm sitting here struggling with my insurance, trying to get them to cover some of it. I ended up coming out of pocket for an entirely new AC system. Insurance covered like 25% of it. Cause they just wanted wow. to repair my old stuff, but my old stuff was so outdated and I had already spent the last two years, I had basically spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars repairing them. I don't want to repair these anymore. I want new units. And also Mm -hmm. they're super inefficient. So I came out of pocket in the middle of all this, I could basically all the money we had left before we got PPP and EIDL and all that. But, um, yeah, so that was going on. Our staff is drenched in sweat all the time, Mm -hmm. wearing masks, uh, during you the know, summer. And, and, and they did, I mean, look, incredible job. And also, I mean, it was so hot and uncomfortable that, you know, every now and then tempers would flare. It's just like yeah. a boiling point yeah. kind of thing. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody's upset with each other. But we were doing pretty well. And, um, like, once we could get back into that, and the tables are spaced apart, but once we... You know, we still beat, we're still beating the previous year, Wow! but just like eking it out Mm -hmm. through the rough part. And then by the time July hit, we were back at 50% capacity. We had ACs again, which I'll tell you what, the ACs without a doubt, like the turning point of the year. Really? You know, I mean, it was. (laughs) Everybody was rejuvenated and excited. I mean, because, I mean, it was just, you couldn't, you weren't, you got to work and you sweat for 14 hours. Yeah. You know, if I'm terrible. working a double, I walk in in the morning, I turn the ovens on, turn the stuff on. <laughs> it's now 85 degrees in the kitchen at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. By 3 p.m., it's 104 degrees, 105 degrees in the kitchen, and the dining room's 85, 90 degrees. Dang. And it's just, you That's know, it's terrible. If you're standing in front of the pizza oven where you're it's screwed. 800 <laughs> degrees, you're, I mean, it's, it's gross, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, but that turning point when we got the ACs and basically around the same time you could do 50% table six feet apart. And we realized that 
man, with this patio we added last year, we basically are at the same capacity we had before. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 1600 square feet. We have, uh, about 50 seats out there. And then we have our old capacity was like 120. Well, we have 50 seats out there that are evenly spaced apart. Mm -hmm. And then we have about 50 seats inside. We're basically at the same capacity patio, as before. Patio is 50% as well? The whole space. Yeah. Be, well, pa well, patio is, so patio is, uh, is it's 50% technically because it's all the same thing, but everything still has to be tables six feet apart. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, and so even when they moved up to 75% recently, the six foot rule still applied. So we couldn't add, actually add any more tables, but, um, you know, we, that's very at, sensible of them. Yeah. So through that, that time, you know, we, we were super precautious about everything. All of our precautious, that's not a word. We were cautious. super cautious about yeah. everything. <laughs> we took all the proper precautions. Oh yeah. And then, um, a lot of people really appreciate it. And all of our neighbors, you know, wanted to see us, uh, survive and it felt cool because for the first time ever I think it made us more of a neighborhood restaurant because mm. people didn't like we hope y'all are here when this is all over with and mm. there was real concern for I mean 110,000 restaurants closed in America this mm -hmm. year or more mm -hmm. over half of those say they'll never reopen like that's wild that is wild and a lot of them that have been open I forget the number it's like 15,000 have been open for over 30 years mm. That's like a lifetime deal. Mm -hmm. um, and for those people to be gone and not come back to a community, that means a lot to people, right? And we had finally become part of our community in this neighborhood. And a lot of people, you know, vocalized that they wanted us to be there. And so they supported us through this whole thing. We had people come and eat, picking up, you know, curbside, doing all this stuff. And at the beginning, the tips were unbelievable too. I mean, nice. the people were so yeah. generous. Yeah. It was cool. Obviously, I'm not getting those, but our servers were making, you know, incredible money, even through curbside, which normally yeah, you don't people give don't really tip much. Very, very few um, tips, yeah. But, uh, you know, and then we got back to what we called the new normal, which was the masks and the tables being apart and all that. And we realized that we were pretty busy and we had learned so many lessons on efficiency and we had streamlined so much stuff. And, um, we were also doing the to go stuff, which hasn't gone away. I mean, on a busy night now, sometimes our to go food is 20% of our sales, wow. which a year, year and a half ago, a crazy to go order night might be 4% of our sales, Oh dang! you know? Um, and now it's, and, and part of that is because we still honor the happy hour to go. So mm -hmm. every day at five 30, people are coming home from work. They got 30 minutes left to order. $7 pizzas, a ticket printer starts going off. Mm. And then there's 15 to go tickets hanging between 5:30 and 6:15, and there's not a ton of people in the restaurant right now because we still can't sit people to bar. That's when the happy hour crowd is normally there. Mm -hmm. So, um it's it's been awesome. I mean, it was a huge thing for us. And uh you know, we we ended up not down a single month last year. Wow. Um and we ended up by the time August hit, we were rolling. I mean, August was incredible. You know, patios going, staff, staff's feeling a lot better. Um, and then, you know, we finished 2020 up 28% over 2019. Dang. Which is, you know, like, couldn't believe it. Yeah, you know, every, every month, I'm going, I can't believe we're here. Mm -hmm. You know, like, but it took 
a tremendous effort from a lot of people to do it. And it took legitimately throwing out all of the, well, this is how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. All of that changed. You're, you, you talked about 100,000 plus, 120,000 restaurants closed in 2020. Do you have any, and I know a lot of hard work, obviously, it sounds like went into y'all still being able to have a positive year. Do you have any like survivor's guilt or anything when it comes to like y'all success that y'all have seen in 2020 or? So not really. How's that work? I thought, I've thought a lot about it. And the, the biggest thing that, so the restaurant industry has an exceptionally high failure rate to begin with. You know, it's something like 75 to 80% of restaurants fail in the first three years. Um, one of the reasons is, is because a lot of people should have never done it in the first place. Nobody opens a mechanic shop that um, like changes their oil on the weekends. Mm. They're like, oh, I changed my oil. I should, I should open a mechanic shop. A lot of people that are casual cooks or, or maybe like a person who made a lot of money in real estate thinks it would be fun to own a restaurant. Nobody does that with other stuff because other businesses aren't fun, but people think restaurants and bars are fun. So they have an exceptionally high failure rate because a lot of people had no idea what they were doing to begin with. So while I'm very sad for a lot of people that went out of business this year, and I understand that it was probably devastating to a lot of them, um, it's probably for the best because they're gonna get, they at least probably got some government bailout money. They at least probably don't owe as much as they would have because if they went out of business this year, there's also a possibility they would have gone out of business in the next two or three years and they would have wasted two or three more years doing it. It sounds kind of harsh and kind of shitty, but um, restaurant business is a different thing. It's in, to my knowledge, one of the only businesses people just think that they should get into because it sounds fun. (laughs) Not a lot of people get into anything else for that reason, especially not if they've already made money in something else. Mm -hmm. The, The quickest way, to uh, you know, make a million dollars in a restaurant business is to start out with two million dollars, <laughs> and that's a like a common understanding. Like unless you're a very savvy investor um, who understands the side of the restaurant stuff, investing in a restaurant's almost always a bad idea. Um, you know, it's like uh, when you soup up a car, you're not going to get out of it what you put into it when you go to sell it later. Yeah, it's like that with a restaurant. Some of this has to be about personal gratification for you. Um, and there is a way to make money, but it's not going to be right away. And, um, you know, also a lot of, there's, there's less guilt for some of for me too, because some people chose to close and just hoped that it would get better and hoping for something is never going to make it happen, right? All the hope in the world is never going to accomplish anything. And so some people just say, I hope it works out. Well, if you close because you hoped it worked out and you just sat at home for four months and didn't do anything while your bank account got smaller and your employees didn't have jobs and your social media presence went away and people forgot about you, I don't have a lot of guilt for that. I'm very heartbroken for the people that, you know, in New York and California that you're closed. There's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to do curbside. You're not allowed to do this and I'll do that. You're closed. I'm heartbroken for those people. I think it's a a travesty and I think it's insane that that was considered acceptable and that so many people agreed with it. Like, yeah, you can't open. How can you tell a person that they're not essential, their business isn't essential, 
when it's their livelihood. And also when it's not just, it's not just a livelihood. If you have a, a restaurant, you might, it might be 12, 15 people's livelihoods. And, and it's also understand that a lot of these people are like family. Um, and some of these are multi-generation family businesses that'll never come back because they just got squashed. And at the same time, there's a target open next door yeah. to their pizzeria. And there's 15,000 people going in and out of every day. And you have to sit there and watch that. That's wild. Right. I, I'm, I don't have any guilt, but I have a ton of compassion and sympathy for them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we had a, we, we closed our location in new Orleans this year. You know, it, it, uh, it just, the sales were 10% of what they used to be. And our lease came up and we just, you know, I, I talked to my cooks and everything. I said, look guys, <laughs> I would love to keep you all working for me. Um, I offered them all jobs in Covington if they would move across the lake or drive if they wanted to commute, but I don't have anything for you here. Mm -hmm. um, and we helped one of them get a job at another restaurant. Um, the, uh, one of them did move to Covington and works for me now. Um, and the other one, uh, he's basically homeschooling his kids right now. So he's hmm. kind of holding off, but we hope to do something with him in the future. Good dude. But, um, you know, I've, I've closed, you know, that'll be the, we closed that restaurant because of all this new Orleans is, uh, practices are, are very similar to New York and California. And it was, <clears throat> you know, curbside only or limited stuff. And then on top of that, just where we're at we're in the central business district there. It's all office buildings. Our lunch crowd was all office workers. And who's renting office space anymore in downtown New yeah. Orleans when everybody can Zoom and Skype and mm -hmm. all that other stuff. And so we never picked back up. Um, we were able to, and look, not, not for lack of trying, we hustled uh, contracts feeding construction crews. I mean, we would have been closed six months before. Our sales in the market were never sustainable, but we managed to make it from March our lease, we, we got out of our lease in December and mm -hmm. we never missed a month of rent. I never missed a day of payroll, but only, I mean, maybe 15% of our sales were coming through the market. Everything else was coming externally. Mm. So, you know, whether that was me calling, legitimately emailing every single construction company in the greater New Orleans area, sending them, uh, hey, look, I can feed your workers. This is the prices we have. You know, do you guys need anything? I own a restaurant in Covington, one in New Orleans. I'm, I'm not looking for a handout, you know, but if you guys need somebody fed, I'll do it. And, you know, we fed, we fed a lot of people for a while and it wasn't huge amounts, but it was enough to keep us going. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be one of them was only 70 people a day, but it was five days a week and it was 10 bucks a plate. And so we get there every morning prep that and we would deliver it to five different locations in the city. It was a contract, uh, I'm sorry, concrete cruise. And so every morning the foremans would text us, I got 10 guys at this address, I got 12 guys at this address, and me and my uh, partner over there, my sous chef, would load up 35 meals each or whatever and drive around the nice. city and drop them off. And I was doing that for, you know, a while. And then when that one ran out, we got another couple of deals. We were driving to... Um, Lafayette making food deliveries from New Orleans Dang. and I mean it's just the op, it wasn't an option to close yeah and then you know so what else can we do and then uh, we got exceptionally blessed that a FEMA contract came up that this really cool organization called Chef's Brigade put together a bid that basically instead of a large um, disaster relief company bidding on it they bid with 
75 local restaurants as subcontractors. Hmm. So they got a bid for, uh, you know, however many meals a day, say it's, say it's 10,000 meals a day or 5,000 meals a day. They split that between all these restaurants and we're each providing 250 meals a day. Cool. And uh, it's been, I mean, that kept us going for a long time. And it kept a lot of restaurants in New Orleans from going out of business, hmm. for sure. Um, and we weren't getting a ton of money for it. It was six bucks a plate, but it was bulk food. You didn't have to package it yourself. You mm-hmm. delivered, uh, you know, if I, like, let's say I'm doing, they asked us to do a vegetarian deal. So we were doing uh, like black beans and street corn and, and like Mexican rice kind of deal. And we would deliver you know, 50 pounds of this, 50 pounds of this, 75 pounds of this. And it had to meet all these certain criteria because it's feeding, they were feeding the elderly in New Orleans. They were feeding people that were quarantined for COVID. They were feeding Mm. school kids that weren't in school and couldn't get their school lunches. Um, So it was a cool thing and it was a a worthy cause. And I was really happy to be a part of it. That that kept us going for a while. Um, But after that was, I mean, there's just nothing. I mean, the market, I have friends that are in the market still that, you know, they're doing maybe half of what they did before really? and, you know, they're surviving. But for us, it was just a matter of, like, we have a restaurant on the North Shore that's obviously, um, I'm much more happy with the political climate on the North Shore as far as a restaurant operator, mm-hmm. um, much more freedom. And, and we've been safe and careful and have had no issues. We've got our whole staff tested repeatedly. Um, nobody's contracted it, um, thankfully. And and we haven't had any issues with guests either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the, the biggest, I mean, the biggest takeaway for the year for me is like, we look back and we talk about it. And I mean, it was obviously a constant topic of discussion was just, um, first of all, we got lucky or we were fortunate at where we're at because it's very much uh, the luck of geography this, this, this year. You know, if I would have been in LA, I'd be out of business. If I'd mm-hmm. have been in New York, I'd be out of business, most likely. I don't have deep enough. The only places that survive in those places are places that have very deep pockets. Mm-hmm. Or if they happen to um, have a landlord who understands uh, booting them out isn't going to do anything because there's nobody else to take it. But, I mean, and, th- and then the other thing that my biggest takeaway was is that a neighborhood restaurant is probably really – the most sustainable restaurant model you can have. You don't want a 500 seat gastronomic temple that people travel across the country to eat at. Um, because what happens if something happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're not a part of anything. You're a part of, uh, the zeitgeist of social media or, uh, trendy stuff, or <clears throat> maybe you've been written up in food magazines and there's people that want to come eat at your place, but you don't have what, what a local restaurant has. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started to appreciate that even more this year. Like the fact that I know at least 50% of the people in the restaurant on a given night is really cool. And we wouldn't be here if those people didn't want us to be here this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, and I think that that's something that I hope that the industry kind of uh, realizes is that some of these uh, restaurants, some of these things that these chefs do um, are not sustainable. Like these bit, these high end Michelin star restaurants that if you don't fill up the whole 
uh, books every night because your operating costs are so high because it's extravagant because there's the nicest silk tablecloths and there's beautiful flowers on the table, all that stuff. If you don't fill up every night, you're going to lose money. It's not sustainable. And also, um, it doesn't like how important is that? And some of that got addressed this year too. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's, you know, I want to still say that there's a time and a place for that, but also understanding that casual, sorry, casual, um, but not low quality food, I think is really where people need to start focusing. Like let's get rid of all the stuff that doesn't actually add value to the dinner. Mm-hmm. And let's get rid of stuff that doesn't actually add value to the experience. And let's make it about a social experience, which I hope this year, because everybody had to isolate so much, I hope this year is the year of social gatherings mm-hmm. and, that's the way we do food. Our food is meant to share. Pizza is great to share. All of our other dishes are meant. If, if, you got, if I got to order for every table that came in, not everybody would just get their own entree, right? You would all have stuff and you would share it because that's what, I mean, breaking bread with people, sharing food, it's one of my favorite things to do. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons I got in this business. And it's still, like, if I'm getting together with friends and we're going to go eat, like me and my friends, they don't even look at a menu. Like, Gavin's going to order. We're all going to share stuff. It's going to be enjoyable. And, uh, and I hope that this year just expounds on that, like that people are so excited to be social and do stuff together again. I think this year has huge potential. Um, but it takes a space like what we created and what other smaller restaurants and local restaurants have created, um, to do that. You know, you don't have a feeling like that at a lot of these, really high-end restaurants Mm -hmm. it feels like you're in a museum less of a of a home Mm -hmm. so you're saying that a sports coat is not necessary to enjoy a good meal super not necessary (laughs) that's such a turnoff for me personally if like Mm -hmm. there's a dress code for a restaurant we have we have we're right on the trace which is like a bike trail bike and jogging trail we have people come in and bike like spandex bike suits and they're clicking around the restaurant in their (laughs) shoes and then there's a couple that's there for, you know, that's typically more of a lunchtime deal, but there might be a couple celebrating their wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there might be a, a table celebrating like a 12 year old girl's birthday and there's eight 12 year old girls at the table. Um, and the, the factor that they're all there uh, is that they all enjoy this place mm-hmm. and they all feel comfortable coming there and you don't ever feel like you don't belong. We don't ever want that feeling mm-hmm. like you walk in and they go, Oh, sir, you're not dressed well enough. Like that's an uncomfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, or, or you walk in and you look around and everybody else is dressed really nice and you just feel like you're underdressed. We don't really think people ever feel that way there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, we purposely don't have white tablecloths. We purposely don't have, um, you know, our servers wearing like, uh, you know, neck, neckties and things like that that kind of make people feel that stuffiness because it's all about being comfortable and enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. That was something that we, that you explained also the first time we talked and then um, kind of explained like why you have the big tattoo on your arm and the whole thought process of the atmosphere you wanted to create behind that. Yeah. Um, I did want to go into a direction. What were you about to say, Carl? I was just going to say, Three of us can go have dinner anytime. <laughs> you Chase can order for I, me anytime. We went, we went, we came my first time to Maribo 
those us two and our, our wives, and I think we all tasted yeah, every everything. single thing on the, on the <clears throat> table. So I think we could we would be good table mates. Yeah, that's yeah, good. for Anytime sure. Anytime we can set that that's up. That's the Chase. way it should be. I, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. We just uh, we're back. No, actually, I quit. I quit because I had to go to the bathroom. So, Gavin, I worked in a, in a, a kitchen for a minute. It's hard to say I worked in the kitchen. They tried to, they tried to pull me over to the dark side, but I was, a, I was a runner, and I was kind of working expo. But the kitchen has its own, like, it's, a, it's almost the kitchen versus, versus front of house. It's just two different worlds. But the kitchen has its own vibe, and it can be kind of harsh sometimes. What's that like as a chef? From, from a chef's perspective, is it supposed to be that way? What's that like? Um, so you're right. There's a lot of a lot of times in a restaurant there becomes the mentality of front of house versus back house, kitchen versus front of house, and you have to do your best to try to mitigate that because the reality is we're all working so that a guest has an excellent experience. Where where the problem comes in is that cooks generally do have a much more difficult job. They're usually there before the staff, the front of house staff. They usually leave after. They usually make less money. Um, it's a less comfortable environment. Um, there's more pressure. You're saying 85 degrees isn't comfortable? Yeah. Uh, there's more pressure. And then um, it's also a harder skill to get really good at. You can become an excellent server if you care. The first, first thing is you just have to care. Mm. You become an excellent server if you care like a year. You can be really good at it. Like real good. You could work almost anywhere with a year of training as a server. That's not a thing as a cook. Um, you know, you're going to start out, you're going to be awkward, you're going to be working a certain station, you're not going to have knife skills, you're not going to have speed, you're not going to have the, the mental acuity of timing tickets. When eight tickets come in and you got 15 things on them and you're trying to figure out when to start everything. And then also just like the movement moving around in a busy kitchen, all the stuff. And that's just being a cook who doesn't have to create anything. You come in and you just have to prep your station and cook and that's it. There's still, it's hard. And it has a history of being hard going back forever. I mean, the French made, there's, there's a couple of incredible books about it. One of them is called um, Down and Out in Paris and London. I forget who that one's by, but I think it's Orwell. Um, and it's a pretty wild story of like 1800s, mid 1800s French and British kitchens where this guy's working in them and the conditions are crazy. You know, the dishwashers are scrubbing pots and with lye soap and their skins peeling off because Dang. it's just, and the, what they have to use boiling water basically to clean stuff and the, just crazy. And that, and then you come out of that and the chefs in that era are famous for screaming and belittling and telling you you're a loser, but obviously in French <laughs> and, and then, um, and just having impossible standards and that continued on. I mean, what, you, what we see in Gordon Ramsay, the U S is like, Oh, Gordon Ramsay, he's this hard ass that's mild by a lot of standards. Um, you know, and, and, some chefs are still in the belief that that's how it ought to be, that it ought to be really hard. You ought to be, um, you ought to understand that it's a grind and it's punishing and it's brutal because you feel like you earn your stripes that way. Um, and uh, the fact of the matter is that 
for the most part, that's very unhealthy. Um, but the, the stress of the kitchen life also often leads to, I mean, you're working with a group of people that you have to find stuff to joke about because a lot of your day sucks um, and there's no way around it. It's just hard. It's busy. You're in the weeds. You're, you're working hard. You're and you're within early. feet of these same few people and you're staring at the same thing yeah. all day. <laughs> and it's hot and you burn yourself and, and you're clean. Like you have to do things that aren't fun. Like you have to clean out the deep fryers every couple of days, mm. which means you're pouring 350 degree oil into a pot, carrying it out the door, dumping it into a grease container, spraying out the inside, scrubbing it like you're scrubbing stoves and ovens and stuff. It's just, it's not glamorous, right? Very, there's very little of being a chef that's glamorous. When you're mopping the floors and squeegeeing at the end of the night after everybody else is gone, there's no TV cameras, you know, like that part is just as important of being a chef as everything else. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why some people get bitter about the whole chef cook thing too, because <laughs> nobody at home is doing that. But you know, uh, you have this camaraderie that you get with people that you work with because you legitimately feel like you're going to war on a busy night. You know, like, you know, we're going to do 300 covers tonight and it's going to be nonstop. And if we're not ready, we're going to get our asses kicked. So there's preparation, the term mise en place, which I definitely talked about last time. It's French for me. It means everything in its place. So you're, you know, at, at four o'clock, I'm walking through the line with the cooks Hey, we got plenty of this. We got plenty of that. How your backups look on this item? We have, we're good on all of our pastas. And we already checked that the night before when we wrote their prep list for the day, but we're checking it again at four o'clock because running out of stuff is the worst. You know, I'll, Sunday, yesterday, I had one of the worst hours I've had in a restaurant in a very long really? time because <clears throat> we just messed up we weren't prepared. And I left, the, I left work for a little while to go visit a buddy of mine. Um, and I, when I left, I left my sous chef and a couple other guys there, um, our other cooks. And then when I get back, my sous chef's leaving, my, my lead AM cook is leaving. <clears throat> and I just assume that everything's ready to go. Um, which, uh, I will say ultimately anything that happens in that restaurant is ultimately my responsibility, right? I'm the executive chef. I'm the owner. Um, and I slipped up and at the same time they both slipped up. They didn't check stuff when they were leaving and it ends up at six o'clock. We start getting tickets in and all of a sudden I realize we're out of our skillet bread, which is a bread that we make. And it doesn't take Dang. long to make, but we're completely out and there's four of them on the board. So we have to make those. We're starting that. And then we're out of our piadina bread, which is bread that we make sandwiches on, which doesn't take long to make, but we have them on the board and we don't have any made. Mm -hmm. Then they're telling me another ticket comes in. Hey chef, is there more chicken thought out? And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? Is there more chicken thought out? That's, we didn't check that before 6.30. And then the whole restaurant is simultaneously filling up. We seat a 12 top, a 15 top, a six top, two, Dang. four tops, all within five minutes. And it's just, like I got just, you get angry because it's preventable. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we making this mistake right now? And the only goal at that point is let's not let the guests find out that we got behind. So what can we do to make this better? So, all right, we're going to slow down a couple things. 
We might send out an app to a table. Um, you know, we might, we're going to tell the server to maybe take a couple extra minutes to take this table's order so we can get caught up with this, but you're legitimately running chicken breasts underwater mm -hmm. going like, you know, what, what went wrong, but at the same, you can't dwell on the, on that you messed up. There's problems to fix. And then, you know, so you can't even. You can't even stay like, you know, it's, it's wild. Cause you get angry and you want to yell and cuss and all that, but it's, and, and some chefs, you know, back in the day and don't get me wrong. I did a little bit of yelling yesterday, <laughs> but you can't let that get in the way of a solution because the ultimate goal is to fix is to get, get everything right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the whole, I was yelling a little bit, but the whole time I'm yelling, I'm trying to fix stuff and you know, Oh, we're running out of this you know, this corn salad that we have for a feature. And do we have more corn? No. Well, that's cool. Um, well, the salad now has to change for this feature because we already sold three of them. And I only have enough corn for probably one, but now I'm gonna add a bunch of other stuff to this salad and I'm gonna make it enough for three. And I'm doing this in the middle of getting our asses kicked on every other part of the restaurant mm. simultaneously. So, you know, at the end of that though, I, I call my sous chef who's not there. I call my lead line cook who's not there. And I talk to both of them. I'm like, look, first of all, I'm really upset. This is what happened. That being said, how do we avoid this happening in the future? Obviously, we all know that we should have checked things. But new procedure. And Sundays are weird because brunch is really busy. You kind of have a lull. It's the last day of the week. Everybody gets a little lackadaisical. Complacent is probably a better word even though we're pretty much always busy Sunday nights, but it was just, something was off. Mm -hmm. Everybody wasn't clicking. And legitimately it would have taken 20 minutes to keep, to be squared away before all this happened. And because we didn't, we had two hours of just misery. Luckily, everything went out great. All the guests had a great time. All the food was, like I'm not gonna sell food that's not right. Even if it takes me, I would rather go tell you, um, your food's gonna be 30 extra minutes. I'm gonna pay for all of it but it's going to be right when it gets to the table, then half-ass it and send some stuff out that I know doesn't meet our standard, right? It's just not worth it. It's not worth, that might be that table's first time. They might never come back. But if you go out and go, look, we really screwed up in the back. And I probably wouldn't say we didn't thaw out chicken. I'd probably say, we burn everything. They burn everything the first time. I'm so sorry. We're going to cook it all over again. It's going to be a few more minutes. Here's a bottle of wine. Y'all drink this. Or here, if y'all are having beers, here's some more beers. If they don't drink, I'm going to get you dessert afterwards. Or if they don't want that, here's a gift card for next time. You, we're going to do something. We're going to make it right. But in the back, it's how do we address this? So at the end of the day, you know, I sit down with one of my other managers, my sous chef, and the other guy on the phone, and we discuss what we're going to do moving forward. And so at the end of the night, I'm frustrated that it happened, but I'm confident that it doesn't happen again at least anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And we also have a legitimate system in place to make sure it doesn't happen you you're talking about a crazy kitchen environment for a couple hours but that's not even if it's not you're behind and you're in the weeds and you're just trying to catch up a typical week in a restaurant kitchen i'm assuming is probably brutal just oh yeah hours it's still yeah i mean you're on your feet all day um you're on your feet all day you know you're sweating you're hot you're gonna burn yourself inevitably um, and it is, it's even stressful when you're, when you're prepared because 
here's the deal. There's, there's stress. Not all stress is bad. Some stress is good because if you are never stressed, it means that you don't care. That's all that means. If you have no stress ever, it means that you don't give a shit about anything. Um, because if you give a shit about something, like if you want someone's food to be perfect, if that's your goal, perfection on this plate, then you're a little stressed the whole time you're doing everything because you have 10 other things going on too. So I'm remembering that I'm, I don't want to burn this or I don't want to overcook this, not just burn. I don't want to overcook this piece of fish by 30 seconds because it's not as good when it's cooked 30 seconds too long. And at the same time, I'm timing, I'm heating up the sauce, I'm doing this, I'm plating six things, I'm wiping plates, and then little stuff is going to happen. Servers are going to ring something in wrong. They're going to come tell you right when you're about to plate the dish, oh my gosh, I forgot to say that that person has a whatever allergy. And then you're throw that off to the side and you're trying to redo other stuff. So there's always little added stressors that are going to happen. And yeah, it's stressful. And I mean, a lot of people deal with that by drinking, partying. Right now, my kitchen is pretty solid as far as um, health, health-wise. You know, I mean, I, when I was coming up, and it's not just the kitchen, it's front of house too, right? I mean, when I was starting out in the service industry, I mean, we drank every night. We'd get, out, get done with work, and it's like, I'm tired. I'm just going to go home. And somebody's like, you just want to go next door and have one beer? Mm-hmm. Eh, all right. Or maybe you go to work and you're like, I'm hungover from last night. I'm not drinking tonight. And then 9, 10, 11 hours later of just running around, grinding it out, and you're just exhausted. And then somebody says, you grab a drink. You're like, that sounds like the best thing ever. Mm, right. I, would, I really could use a drink. And it becomes a coping mechanism. Um, and it does. It, and look, it's not for everybody. Some people, it's fine. And they, they manage it well. But some people, you get kind of wrapped up in that lifestyle. I certainly did. I know a lot of people who have. I mean, I've had two people that have worked for me, three people that have worked for me in the past, either die of a drug overdose or suicide. Mm. And it's very close to me, you know. And, mm-hmm. and on top of that, I know that have, that's who have worked for me. People that I know, I mean, it's, I probably couldn't count them on both hands, mm-hmm. you know. This is definitely something I wanted to, and we talked about it before, but I wanted to uh, ask you about, have been thinking about. Uh, and then when we were talking before the podcast, you were telling me about your March 2021 plan and things that you've like been doing. And you kind of mentioned the stress and, and the things that weigh on you. And so perfectly leading, segueing into, as Carl set us up for. Um, but I wanted to ask you about just the just the the load that you referenced earlier the stress like minute to minute but then day to day week to week and then you mentioned earlier you have 35 people working for you especially the last year i mean there you know everything's been in the news people struggling from shutdowns and losing their businesses and then drugs and and all of those coping mechanisms that you mentioned um and then you know re- I know a big hero of yours also was Anthony Bourdain and you know, he, we lost him to suicide as well. Um, not sure the exact circumstances around it, but, but still ended, ended that way. And then a local guy here in Baton Rouge in the last couple of weeks, um, uh, apparently also similar circumstances. So I guess I wanted to hear your perspective. Um, and, uh, and you mentioned something a second ago about, you know, if you're never stressed, you, and I actually kind of related a little bit to that because I'm rarely stressed about things. Um, but you said it's because you don't care about stuff. And so I think like you're a very passionate person 
and again, I'm just going to reference many things we've talked about for a second, but you mentioned earlier you could possibly, or maybe you don't call cooking art like you would something else, but I would disagree. I'd say it's definitely an art form, uh, and especially for people who are passionate about it that can do those creative things that no one else is doing. It's so important to them that when it doesn't happen how they want it, or if there's problems, then that's magnified. So, um, and I, and I wasn't aware, like you mentioned, of how close you are to some people that have struggled with that yourself, like you mentioned, but also these other guys there or girls that have struggled. So can you share a little bit, I guess, of maybe, uh, of yeah. what you've seen and some of the things that alleviate or, or help that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think almost any business owner can relate to the stress of owning a business. Um, you know, and then something I, I, I was journaling the other night, which is something I decided I would do every, every night in March. That's cool. I've tried before. I've never committed to it well, but I don't write a bunch, but I am, I am doing it every night. And, uh, I was journaling and I wrote, um, I just wrote restaurants make everything that we sell. And I was like, obviously, well, not all of them do. A lot of people buy stuff in boxes and cans from Cisco or whoever, and they sell it. Mm. But how hard would it be to own a shoe store if you had to make all the shoes? And how mm. hard would it be to own a car dealership if you had to make all the cars? Um, a lot of businesses are just a go-between. They don't produce anything. They don't make their own stuff. Um, you know, it's just they buy something from another person and they sell it to somebody else. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. But every day we have to make all of the stuff that people are going to get. So there's a lot that goes into that. You know, we make, let's call it a hundred individual prepped items. That might mean we might make 10 sauces. We make 10 or 15 pizza toppings. We make all this other stuff. And every day, all those have to be remade and restocked and all that type of stuff. And if you really care about it all being really good, that's one thing in and of itself. You have all the work that has to be done. And then as an owner or a chef, you have the people that work for you that you need to keep happy. And uh, just as importantly as keeping guests happy. But for me, what's, what's scary and what's stressful is that when we make a mistake, it's that we might lose what we've gained with a guest, right? If you make a mistake and you don't know about the mistake, especially, or if you give a guest a bad experience, you know, I don't ever want to do that for two reasons. One, because that's not the business I'm in. I want them all to leave here in a better mood than they got here. And two, because what happens if they don't come back? There's as busy as we've been this last year, there's still a, <clears throat> a part of me that says this could all go away at any point in time. Mm -hmm. People could just decide to like another restaurant better tomorrow. And there's a little part of you that I think is, I think it's good that it's there because it keeps you motivated to be better mm -hmm. and not be complacent. Um, I think a lot of restaurants get so busy, especially like tourist trap type restaurants not all those restaurants started as tourist traps so a lot of restaurants in new orleans that i would tell people to never eat at because they're terrible <laughs> but i'm sure they weren't terrible 30 years ago when everybody loved them mm -hmm. but they just got so busy and they were like why should we try as hard as we've been trying when we could be not as good and we'll still be busy mm -hmm. and if you have that mentality then you're that'll happen but the fact that you have this mentality of 
this could all go away or, you know, it, it could just disappear. Then you're that little bit of stress mo motivates you. Um, and so that's a normal amount of stress and it's good. But you know, this year was the stress of, yeah, I might legitimately lose everything. Um, and that, you and know, not I, I told a lot and of not people because you were messing and out of, yeah, out of, out just of no fault other of circumstances. Own, right? Yeah. I told a lot of people, I said, if I, even this year, if I had lost everything, I'm only, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years, but this restaurant almost five, if I lost everything this year and I had to start over, probably would not open another restaurant. Hmm. Right. I would just rethink my life. And if it meant that I just, I would probably just get a job somewhere doing something I didn't hate. And I would, I would, I would just, that would be it because I don't think I could pour more of myself into something knowing that it could just disappear again. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe, but it would probably be years down the road. Mm -hmm. It certainly wouldn't be like, let's try again next year. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can make this work. Um, and so you have all that. And then, you know, you have the, the stress of dealing with employees. I have a great staff, but they're not always perfect. And you, it, you're never going to find employees that care as much as you do about right. your business, but you want to try to get them to. Um, but there's this constant battle, and especially in the restaurant business, you don't typically have a lot of career-minded individuals. You have people that are there for a short time. They're there because they're in school. They're there because they're looking for something in between, um, or they're there because um, they know you don't drug test and they can get a job there. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a tricky thing. And also, Covington's a very small town, so we don't have a giant labor pool. Um, bigger cities are easier to find good cooks and good servers. Career, there are career servers and career cooks, but smaller towns have way less of them. Mm -hmm. um, there's the stress of that. And then, uh, you know, just the, the day to day of a restaurant is just a lot. I mean, I, I think if most people, I mean, if I knew exactly what was involved five years ago, like the amount of work required, I would definitely second guess my decisions. Hmm. Um, I'm happy I did it. And I, and I can say that because I'm here now, but two years in, you know, if I had gotten a, a button I could push and be out and be debt free two years in, I would have smashed that. I would have jumped on the button, hmm. but you can't, you got a three year lease, three years left on your lease. You owe people money. There's no out. So the only out is through and making it. And so that's, you know, why we're here, but man, there were times, I mean, there were some definitely very unhealthy times, especially me, between me and my first partner, we were both so stressed cause we literally didn't have money. Like we paid payroll out of our own bank accounts and then it's, we hope we can pay ourselves back when the sales from the weekend hit or like we're buying supplies on credit cards mm -hmm. and just crossing your fingers, hoping it gets better or that it starts to work. And you know, we're here and you know, we are on the other side of all that. Um, but at those points, I mean, there was some really rough times, you mm -hmm. know, we're, and I, and I don't even know, you know, now I can say I'm in a pretty good place mentally and, and I would like to try to help people, but I don't even know if there is a lot of, uh, 
hints or tips or things you can do when things are that bad. Mm. I, I, I was, I was leaning towards asking a question along those lines because it does. Cause after we talked before we started the podcast sounded like, um, like you're progressing a lot, you know, this month or this year and like things are, you're turning personal things around, turning the restaurant things around. And then also hearing about you explain the last year, uh, through all of the, you know, X, what's that word? Uh, extra, whatever outside of yourself circumstances. Yeah. Um, extraneous. Ex- yeah. Something like that. Um, the, but then, but you mentioned, that sounds good to me. You mentioned while we were talking about it though, but there was the closing was not an option for you. Yeah. Uh, and so then I, I was kind of thinking, um, you know, if, when you're in those super stressful times, uh, one way to get through them is to take that mindset of there is no other option, but then how do you, and again, there's maybe not tips, but what was your kind of, um, attempts to balance reducing your stress with the wall that you know that you have to go through. There's no other option to go through it. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning I drank, honestly, at the beginning of COVID, I drank a good bit, not, not like to a, a true, uh, but when I told you I couldn't sleep and stuff, it was like, well, I guess yeah. if I have four or five drinks before bed, mm. I'll fall asleep. Um, and then, you know, a couple months in, I snapped out of it and I was like, this isn't productive. Um, I think one thing that would help is people being able to talk to other people, Mm. uh, chefs as close knit of a community as a lot of us are, um, a lot of us aren't and a lot of people, and it's because there's somewhat of a sense of competition. You know, some people believe that if you're doing well, that that means I'm not doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, when in reality, that's not really the case. Um, usually you know, uh, you want more good restaurants around you because it brings more people to the area. You know, it's a rising tide and it's beneficial. Um, I know I talked to you a little bit about Danny Meyer on the last, uh, uh, podcast we did. And he's the guy from New York that has all the successful restaurants. Mm -hmm. And he talks in his book about how he, he wants there to be other good restaurants by him. He's never threatened by that. And he makes sure that his staff knows that we shouldn't be threatened by that because that means that we made a good decision on being in the right neighborhood. Mm. These people also agree this is a great neighborhood to be in and it's going to bring more people and it's just a good thing overall. So a lot of chefs though, don't have, they have this feast or famine deal, but in reality we can all get fed if, uh, if we, especially if we work together. So, I mean, through this, um, I got a lot closer with a couple of the other restaurant owners in Covington. We talked a lot about, you know, what are you doing with this? You know, what are you paying your cooks? Like what, you know, how are you keeping good people? Mm. You know, what's, what are y'all doing about the, are y'all going to open y'all's dining room? Are y'all going to wait a little longer? Like on certain things we waited, like they would announce on a Thursday, you could reopen your dining room on Friday. Well, I'm not staffed for that. Mm -hmm. And I also don't have all those necessary precautions. So we're going to reopen on Tuesday and we're going to do the same thing we've been doing through the weekend. And they would say, are y'all going to, what are y'all doing? All right, we're going to try the same thing. And so it became much more of a community. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's valuable and super important and could be even more um, valuable in the long term, not just for owners, but for cooks and, um, and, and front of house people and everybody in the industry. Um, you know, in the last three or four years, talking about 
stress, mental health, all that has become really destigmatized. And that's great mm -hmm. because I imagine, I mean, even when I was starting out in restaurants, if I had gone to my chef and said, Hey, these last couple of weeks have been really hard. Can I get a day off just to have a breather? He would have laughed at me. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there's times where, you know, people say stuff at the restaurant and they're like, I'm just really stressed. And part of me wants to go, you have no idea what mm -hmm. stress is, but then you have to remind yourself that that might be the most stress this person's ever been under. And so that is stressful for them that they have a test on Friday and they have to wait tables on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, that's very stressful for them. Um, but you're going like, do you have a loan and a mortgage and a, <laughs> and a this and payroll to me like that's stress, but it's stress for them too. And so, you know, something I mentioned a little bit before <clears throat> we were in discussions with partnering with NAMI, which is a national Alliance for mental illness, um, which is actually the first time we partnered with them was, uh, we did a fundraiser, uh, in honor of Anthony Bourdain, we did, uh, his birthday. Oh yeah. I we did a, a yeah. wine dinner on mm -hmm. his birthday and it was themed and we donated all the proceeds from that wine dinner to NAMI. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was in talks with uh, their director on the North shore about getting, having some sort of a get together for service industry people at Maribo. Real quick. Yeah. What's NAMI? You say that the national Alliance on mental illness. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And they have chapters all over the country. Um, and uh, they have, you know, hotlines you can call and talk to a real person all the time. Um, and uh, what's great, the director on the North Shore, he grew up working in restaurants. And so when I mentioned that That's to cool. him, he said he would be really interested. And mm -hmm. we were about to start that um, right before all this stuff happened. So it's very much on the radar to, to try that again. But I would like to make Maribo a place that, you know, on, on, we're closed on Mondays. I'd like to do it one or two Mondays a month where people can come and at the very least get resources um, or, or find a person that they can talk to or find, even if it's just a, a buddy or a friend that they can reach out to when stuff's going on. Um, or just to know that that even exists, mm -hmm. to know that there is someone you could call, you know, um, it, it could be could be a difference for somebody. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, you know. But I definitely, uh, one of my old sous chefs, um, who is a really incredible guy, but just struggled with drugs forever. Two young kids, beautiful kids. He's the best dad, but always struggling. And he stopped working for me for a while. And then, you know, I find out one day, I'm actually supposed to have a meeting with the director of NAMI like in a couple of days to talk about not this in particular, something else. And then I get a call that uh, James had passed away. And I didn't even have to ask, you know. It's like, oh. And I was like, is it what, it, what we think it was? He's like, yeah. It's just, I went out, walked out back of the restaurant. I sat there. And I thought to myself, is there anything that I could have done to help James? Because at that point, he was now the third person that had worked for me had either died of an overdose or uh, suicide. And I just said, man, like, I don't ever want to hear that again. I don't mm -hmm. ever want to get that call again. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't ever want to know that I was close with a person and they struggled so much with that. And I didn't have anything I could do to help. And not that, look, maybe it wouldn't have helped James, but maybe it would have. 
And so the next, you know, two days later, I talked to the guy from NAMI, the director, and I say, look, I know I talked to you about this a little before, but now I'm, I'm really serious about it. Like this has to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is something that, you know, at times as a chef, I struggle with, um, <clears throat> like meaning, I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? Like I cook food and I, I care so much about it, but at the end of the day, you could eat uh, a bag of peanuts and it, you'd be fine. Um, and I look at like, I have some buddies that are nurses or doctors and I look at them and I'm like, man, they're really doing something that's important. Um, and I, for, there was a while where I really struggled with it. And then I said to myself, yeah, cause I pour so much into it and I go, man, if I did something else, I could probably make a real, Im- if I worked this hard at being something else, I could make a real impact in people's lives. And like, if I was, I could be a nurse already. I could be a doctor if I worked as hard on that as mm-hmm. I did on this for the last five years. Um, and I could actually save lives. And then I said, you know, but doctors aren't going to be able to talk to my line cook, who's a meth addict and, um, or the, or the guy who washes dishes, who's a 50 year old alcoholic who has never stopped drinking. Um, those people are in my wheelhouse. They're around. And so I have a, and to some degree, I have a captive audience. You know, I, I proposed to the, the um, director of the North Shore NAMI chapter that I would offer my staff, if they would come in, they could clock in during the whole meeting. So they're getting paid to maybe get help. And it's not a lot of money, but for some people, a couple extra hours a week is significant. Mm-hmm. And I said that I would suggest to other chefs and restaurateurs on the North Shore to do the same thing. Hey, look, if your staff wants to come, I think you should reward them for it. I think you should tell them they can be clocked in the whole time they're at this meeting Um, because that's something we can do to try to get a captive audience of people that might not necessarily want help at first, might not even know they need help at first, but they do, and it might benefit them. Um, Going back to what I just said about struggling with meaning, though, I have a really tight-knit group of friends that we, they don't even live in town anymore, but we, we text each other all day every day. And, um, one of them the other day said something that was really impactful for me. Um, I forget exactly how it started, but he basically said, um, man, it's really cool that you've created a a place that is your restaurant where people have authentic connections and interactions and they want to do that at your restaurant. Um, and that's one of the most important things in life is people having authentic interactions. And he's like, and you should feel really cool that you've created that space and for the you know I I like what I do and I'm pretty proud of it a lot but I very rarely feel that it's meaningful Mm -hmm. and he said that it gave me a really awesome perspective and I I've read it probably 10 times um just because you know it's he's right it's not necessarily saving a life but not all of life is just living or dying life is is living your life and Mm -hmm. enjoying it and providing a place where people can come where they want to celebrate their anniversary and they have a special moment there or they propose to someone or just it's my daughter's 16th birthday and we want to do it at your restaurant because she loves it and all of her friends think it's cute in there and we want to take cute pictures (laughs) and that in and of itself is meaningful um but you know and, and i do my best to to try to let the people that work for me know 
um, you know, the cooks, the, the everybody that, you know, I thank them for what they do because they're legitimately helping me live my dream, right? Um, and so I hope that, and I haven't done a good enough job of this, I'm just now kind of thinking of it, but I would hope that they find some meaning in what we do too. Um, because I think a lot of people just, especially in restaurants, just kind of, they just work. They show up. It doesn't mean much to them. Um, but I think if you can give people a sense of purpose and meaning, that that, prob- that has to help with mm-hmm. mental health. Because just reading that text message from a guy who half the time we text in, he's you know telling me I'm fat and ugly, you know, because <laughs> we're best friends. And then he tells me that. And, and hearing that from him legitimately mentally helped me, you know, and, and I've looked at it a few times, like I said, because it's a nice perspective, but it's not just blow and smoke. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And so to have that perspective, um, I think can be really beneficial for people in this industry that maybe feel like they're not doing anything. Yeah. Um, I just was, I, there's like a lot of things I wanted to say, but the first thing is, um, can't wait to hear your podcast because you, you don't need anyone to, to ask you questions for, to, real. for you to talk, uh, I, I eloquently want, about these. I want to say something real quick. You're talking about finding purpose in what you do. And I feel like that's something that not just chefs or restaurateurs, re- restaurateurs mm-hmm. or, you know, any, any type of, I think that's something that every single person probably experiences at some point. I literally had this conversation with my wife yesterday of like, what am I, am I really like living my calling or my purpose in life <laughs> yeah. and not to be super deep about it, but I think that's something that we all wrestle with for sure through life. And it's just, so I think, I, I think it's cool that you're like finding your whys and your, you know, your why, not your whys. You are wise. It sounds like, but, <laughs> uh, finding that purpose in what you do in your everyday, I think that's something that we should all like spend time trying to, to do. Cause I think you're going to be a lot better up between the ears, you know, when oh, you for figure sure. that out. So I'm sorry, Chase, to interrupt you. No, you cool. told me to get a mic. No, I did for sure. <laughs> Cause I knew it would be good. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I also talk with my wife about that too. It's like, and I think, uh, I mean, there's a really, a lot of really great things that you just said in that, in the last, after I asked you the last question, but I mean, just the fact of, um, you know, like I could tell like when you were talking about this guy, like how much it impacted you and I'm sitting here like, Oh man, I hope I don't like start getting emotional here while Gavin talking about this guy. And then I read the story about the local guy here recently and I'm like feeling emotional about it cause he had kids also. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, tr- it's, it's sad. And, and then I think but that's a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, um, earlier in the podcast, I think was an answer to, your question of meaning that your friend incredibly and right on pointed out was, and I was going to bring it up, but you got into that, which was way better than what I was going to say. But, uh, but just the fact of the community that you, and you referenced it a few times, but the community that you're creating behind, um, you know, behind what you're doing. And especially in the last year, you, you know, you mentioned that the neighborhood restaurant is, the strongest type restaurant and y'all felt that through the last year of people who, you know, made their connection to you known by coming to support you during this time. 
and made their love of what you've created known by giving bigger tips and things like that. And then the camaraderie that y'all were talking, that Carl brought up and y'all were talking about in the kitchen, just like, you know, these people that, you know, from different walks of life, different struggles, different passions, whatever, but can connect on that and have a lifetime of memories from that. So I thought that that last dialogue, and I'll be a little meta talking about it, but I thought that it was very, uh, a good perspective on my original kind of thought around that entrepreneur stress and people depending on you and the restaurant and the chef thing, some things that we've seen in the industry and, and along those lines. But, and I, and also it's really cool that you're stepping up to compliment you and cause I am not a person at all to talk about that kind of stuff for the most part. It's like, I don't want to talk about any of that push it down type thing, but I can definitely see, and as you're talking about the benefit of being able to connect with someone and talk about things, which was the tip that you, that you think is yeah, a big I think, one. I mean, I think that's gotta be one of the only things. Cause there are points where it feels like there's nothing you can do. You can't dig any deeper. I can't make people come into the restaurant. So it's a matter of I'm working a, the, as hard as I can. I'm doing everything the best I know how. And it's sometimes that's still not quite enough. And that feeling is, is, uh, it's just hard. You don't, you don't know what to do. And I think the only thing at that point is, uh, you can't just hold all of that angst in, mm -hmm. uh, because it, it is very self-destructive to just hold on to it. And then, uh, you know, even just talking about it helps you let some of that go. Some of it you realize that maybe is not as bad as you think. Um, some of it you realize you don't have any control over it, so there's no point in having the stress. So then you can start to focus on the stuff that you do have control over, mm -hmm. um, which is a big thing that I've tried to do this year as well. I think also it's... It, it, it's um I think beneficial, valuable, if to put a word on it, to hear you express like sometimes you struggle with meaning, the meaning side of things, just because of like from an outside perspective, I also kind of have, and maybe it's a little stereotypical, forgive me, um, but seeing you, you know, create something and build something that you're extremely passionate about doing what you love every day, you know, yes, all, this huge mountain of stress and hardships along with it. But being able to do that, like, uh, to, again, from the outside, there is a certain amount of meaning that I assume you're getting from all that. And so I think, uh, you know, people, whether it's a successful person or, again, somebody that's just doing something that they love, to hear someone say that they still kind of feel a little bit empty or a little bit, what is the meaning of it, um, I think gives perspective for me on that's a legitimate number one, that's a legitimate thought to have. And then number two, finding that meaning in it, like you are doing it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, you may be currently asking the question, but it is happening. And so you just have to pin, like your friend pinpointed it for you. You just have to find it. Yeah. And it's actually kind of funny. Something that just popped in my head ever since we first opened one of my absolute favorite things to do. Our front of our restaurants, all glass windows. Right. So you can see inside. I remember, I know what you're about to say. And I love one of this. my favorite things to do is if we're really busy at night, I like to walk out of the back of the restaurant, I like to cross the street and I like to look into the restaurant and see everybody inside. And 
the first time I did it, it was like our, the night after we opened and my mom grabbed me and my partner and took us across the street. I'm getting emotional talking about it. And we saw it and I was like, I can't believe this is here. I can't believe we did this. Little did we know, like that was the very beginning of some very hard times. But now, you know, I think a few months ago, I took my sous chef and I, for the first time. I was like, hey, let me come show you something real quick. I was like, this is, and he's actually, he's my partner now. He's, he owns 10% of the business now. So my sous chef and partner, um, I took him around, uh, to, you know, out back when we were busy. I was like, you got a second? Come on, come see this. And I took him across the street. I was like, hey, man, this is it. Like, look at this. Look at all these people. The patio's full. People are having a good time. The dining room's full. You can see people smiling, laughing. You see people. And, I, and obviously at those moments, it, I know what's going on. Mm. But my buddy kind of putting it in words, mm. is, it's the exact same thing. What I've seen and appreciated is the exact same thing that he, he verbalized or, or put in text. But um, you know, seeing that is the most rewarding thing. Um, you know, it's great when somebody says, uh, you know, we love your food. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, like that part, not to sound cocky or something, kind of obvious. The food's good. <laughs> like yeah. it's it, people like food and people like food. That's not that good. People love chilies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Chilies ain't bad. I don't, I don't mind chilies, but just good food is not enough to create that. Um, and so it's more special when people love your restaurant and not just your food, mm-hmm. right? When they go, just that, I love the atmosphere. I love the way I feel when I'm here. I can't wait. My friends come in town. I can't wait to take them here. And it's the whole experience. And that is by far the most rewarding part of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I was a professional cook and before I was a chef, I loved cooking for people because I like feeding people. I like seeing their reaction when they eat it. I mean, I've been cooking my whole life and you're like waiting for them to take the first bite and see if they smile. And it's a good feeling. Um, and it's a good feeling because you did it mm-hmm. and you made them feel good. And, and also with the food part, you know, for me, I do care a lot about the food. Obviously it's, that's the most important part to me, me personally, but for, as far as guests are concerned, it's the whole experience and to build that is a really cool thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, somewhat of a transition question, but still on COVID. Um, it sounds like through all of what you, we've t- been talking about for a while that um, it was a huge blessing in disguise and it was a pressure test to, to bring you to the next level type thing. Uh, I guess first, would you agree with that? And then second, do you, is it better for your business that it happened? Um, I would 100% agree that it was better. I don't think Maribo would be where we are now today if it had not happened. At least we might be at the same sales, but I wouldn't be the same person I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I've grown tremendously. Um, I, uh, I learned a lot about myself this year, about how I treat people, how I lead, um, how I help other people become leaders. Um, I'm going to shout out a book that's incredible that if you are in any position of leadership, you should read. It's called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink mm-hmm. um, and Leif Babin. I got the audio book. I also bought the book book so that I could like go through and highlight stuff. 
later, but it's a lot of stuff that if you've read anything about leadership in your life, it's not groundbreaking, but it is so simple and straightforward and it is holds you so accountable. Um, I mean, the, the word extreme ownership, it, it did, it very much, uh, impacted the way that I manage and how I did things. Um, and I have seen tremendous positive results from utilizing some of those principles that I always kind of knew in the back of my head. But just because you know stuff doesn't mean you put it into place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did this year with a lot of that. I'm actually in the middle part of this March as I'm, I'm reading it again. I was like, you know what, I'm sure I'll get something else out of it this time. And I have already. And I think... Um, you know, that was one thing we, I don't know if we would have ever done online ordering or not anytime soon. We got forced into that. And now it's a huge part of our business. I don't know that a lot of the efficiency stuff we picked up, it was like, this has to happen. We have to figure out how to be better at this today, or we might be closed next week. And that forces your brain into overdrive. It forces the whole team to go, what if we did it this way? And there was no wrong. Mm-hmm. We were asking everybody, what do you think about? I'm asking cooks, dishwashers, how should we do this? How should we do that? And we adapted a lot. Mm -hmm. And one thing I would want to say to restaurant owners, if you're still really struggling, it's not too late to make changes still. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're struggling, what's the worst that, if you're still really struggling to stay open, make ends meet, whatever, what's the worst that could happen to try something different? Um, You know, if you're already on the brink, like, and I'm not saying change your whole concept, but maybe change your whole concept. I don't know. Um, you know, I talked to some people, you know, at one point, uh, I, I tried to offer some free consulting for people just because I really thought some people could use some help. Um, maybe because they're the way they do things are a little archaic or whatever. And one guy, um, was interested a little bit and then we got into talking and he real, we basically realized he didn't want to change anything mm. and he's not in business anymore. I don't know that I would have turned it around, but I know that he didn't change anything and he no longer has a business. And for us, we just said, I mean, I, be, I said, I'll, I'll become a taco restaurant if I have to, if that's <laughs> what's going to keep us open. And you know, all that, nothing was sacred. Mm-hmm. There was no anything that was off limits. That's also That's interesting too. You say you could become a taco restaurant cause just a minute ago you said to you, the most important thing was food, but clearly it's not, it's staying open for well, yeah, the livelihood of the, the restaurant tacos, and the people. You know? It'd be pretty good tacos. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. We'd actually sure. did You're, on Cinco point. de Mayo. We did taco. It was on Tuesday this year. So we did taco Tuesday Yeah. and we <laughs> sold like 195 tacos that day. Wow. Um, at our pizza restaurant between, between three and seven, we sold 195 tacos. Nice. And only at that point in time, it was still only takeout. Still. Wow. Dang. Yeah. Cinco de Mayo last year was still Taco on Tuesday to go. Sounds like you're a prime example of like adversity leading to some innovation that for sure has really paid off for you guys. So yeah, I've, cool I've said about. it a lot throughout the last few months is that if a restaurant has managed to adapt and, and, and make it through this, they will be so much stronger because of it. Um, and I know I have a lot of friends that are in the restaurant business and a lot of them, they're in the same position as me, uh, that they, they are not necessarily grateful that this happened because that's a weird way to say it. Right. But that, um, it, it could have been worse. 
you know, and, and we're, I'm grateful for the changes it forced in me. Right. And that forced in our restaurant and our team. And, and we are legitimately a much better restaurant in every aspect today than we were a year ago today. Mm. Talked about trimming some fat, you know, just finding the efficient ways just to survive. Are there any dishes that haven't come back that people have asked for? Um, yeah, anything our, like that, our, our or anything that stayed off that you're like, I do not miss cooking <laughs> that. I mean, our arancini, which is uh, it's a risotto, basically a ball of risotto, which is a creamy rice wrapped around a meat and cheese filling that's then battered and fried and served with red. So it's like a classic Sicilian dish. Arancini means little orange because typically they're about the size of an orange, and you fry it in breadcrumbs, and it kind of looks like a little orange. Um, it is a hassle of a dish to make um, because you have to cook risotto. Then you have to make the filling. Then you have to chill the risotto so you can actually wrap it around the stuff. Then you have to semi-freeze it so that you can batter it because the risotto is too soft. But you can't fry them from frozen because they're too big. Um, and the meat that we put in the middle is beef cheeks. And so they, that braises for between six to eight hours. Then you have to pick it all which is only like a 45% yield. So you're picking out all the junk that isn't good. And it's a $12 appetizer, right? Dang. And the amount of work that goes into it is insane. And people love it. And I get it because it's delicious. It's so good. But I ought to be charging like $24 for it. Mm. But nobody would pay that. So it's not on the menu. And it probably is not coming back anytime <laughs> soon. It's probably something we'll do. We decided that some stuff would just be things that we just use for features. Like, hey, look, we know you guys missed the arancini. We're making 40 of them this weekend. But that's it. <laughs> you know, um, because we realized that some dishes, even though people love them, legitimately weren't worth the time and effort for us to do it. Um, you know, can we, we can, we can devote more time, like all the, like that one dish to make 50 of those, which would be like a typical batch size or something like that, is legitimately hours and hours and hours of active prep, not just passive prep where it's in the oven for six hours. Dang. Somebody's picking the, the meat for four or five hours afterwards. Then they're grating the cheese. They're mixing that together. Somebody's making risotto for 45 minutes. Then they're balling them. Then when you have to freeze it, then you have to batter it. It's flour, egg wash, breadcrumbs. And then they're freezing again. And then, then that's that one dish. And you go, you know, yeah, it's delicious and it's awesome. But um, we can't charge enough for this dish for it to really be worth our while. So we're not going to do it. But what it allows us to do instead is you know, every Friday we have between three and four features or between two and four features that are stuff that we've never done before that we do every Friday. It's feature, hashtag feature Friday. Uh, we also did as we one thing this year is that we, basically every day has something that we have it so tuesday is burgers they're seven dollar burgers on tuesday wednesday's happy hour all day thursday is ten dollar chicken parmesan all day and then from six to eight it's ladies night which means seven dollar margarita pizzas and like five dollar bubbly cocktails things like that nice all those little things and then friday is feature friday saturday is sandwich saturday which means hot chicken sandwiches and burgers are seven bucks and then sunday is brunch and then Sunday dinner is just normal. Um, so there's a thing every day. We did it because we wanted to promote the to-go food and all that. And then some people come every Saturday because they want their $7 hot chicken sandwich. 
and some table, and it might be a table of eight where two of them want a hot chicken sandwich and they convince their friends to come. The other eight people order pizzas and pastas and whatever. And so we learned a lot about some stuff like that. But um, as far as efficiency, it was like, if we can streamline the menu and just focus on what sells the most and we also make good money on, we, it gives us a lot more time to be creative and make different food. So we've done multiple, you know, we did, uh, we've done a couple of wine dinners um, since all this started and they're socially distanced. You know, we used to do or like to do more of like big communal tables because people get to meet each other. You sit next to a person you never met before, you share a few glasses of wine, all of a sudden you have some friends and you both like our restaurant and it's kind of a cool thing. That's cool. But we've done these and it's a bunch of two tops. There's 25 two tops sitting around the restaurant in the patio and we're doing a wine dinner like that. And um, you know we've done two of those and we did a Valentine's Day prefix dinner kind of similar to that. And then this April, we'll be doing like a whiskey and wild game dinner. Um, and then in June or July, so basically every three months now, we're gonna be doing a dinner like that. And it gives the kitchen a chance to really flex and show off and do stuff that isn't, cause it gets boring doing the same stuff all the time. But then literally every Friday, there's features. And starting Tuesday, we talk about, we get a, we get a order list from our local produce company that is legitimately local produce from farms around here. Like, this is what we have this week. And we'll sit there and go, all right, what looks cool to get in? Like, what do we want to do? Well, what kind of proteins? Well, uh, so the fish guy sends me, this is the local fish I have. This is what I have coming in from the Gulf. And then it's, all right, do we want to do, you know, right now it's Lent. So Fridays, there's always going to be at least one or two seafood or non-meat features. Um, and then we really like to use vegetables because I think it takes a little more skill to make vegetables taste delicious than it does to t make like bacon taste delicious. Right. <laughs> For sure. Um, if you can get a person to eat a pile of green beans or Brussels sprouts and go, that's f incredible. That's the one of the best things I've ever had. That's a win. Yeah. Um, if you make a tasty cheeseburger, like your Brussels sprouts at your restaurant, those are good that right? I hate. I hate Brussels sprouts. When I went to your restaurant and ate Brussels sprouts, it's like, whoa, maybe I like Brussels sprouts. Yeah, we sell a bunch of them, right? I mean, it's that's a thing. <laughs> um, but that's that's kind of more rewarding for a chef too. Like, can yeah. I take an ingredient that's not as glamorous, that's not as standalone delicious? You know, like a steak is good. You put salt on it, you don't overcook it. It's good. That's true. I can do that. You don't. You don't <laughs> have to try that hard. It's cool when somebody will go. These are turnips. <laughs> Why are these so good? Yeah. And you're like, well, we, uh, we smoked them and then we roasted them and then we glazed them in this stuff. And then the puree underneath it is, you know, this, and they're like, oh, well, yeah, that's delicious. <laughs> and it, it took a lot of thought and effort and, uh, skill to make that a thing. Mm -hmm. Now that you're telling all the steps, can you go ahead and tell us how to make your awesome Brussels? Yes. <laughs> First off, you need a deep fryer. Uh. Don't you can that. get close. You can get <laughs> close with an oven. Okay. Uh, but an air fryer. You can do it in an air fryer. Okay. okay. Got that. If you have an air fryer, you're going to want to get the air fryer hot. And even the pan you're going to put the Brussels on needs to be hot. Okay. So the air fryer and the pan that's going to go in the air fryer hot. You're going to want to toss your Brussels in a bowl with some oil a little bit. Ideally like a vegetable oil, not olive oil, mm -hmm. a flavorless oil. You're going to get them in there and you're going to crank the air fryer about as high as it goes. Um, I say that 
I don't work with a lot of home equipment, so it's a little different. So you'll have to check the timing. Mine goes to 400. So. But you'll crank it all the way up, and you're going to let it go until they start to get color on them and all that. Um, the main thing that's that we do, we make a pepper jelly, but it's not that's just straight pepper jelly. <laughs> it's it's technically a gas streak, which means that it's uh, sugar and vinegar together. Um, so we take um, we actually start with a base of just apple jelly. We buy like gallons and gallons of apple jelly, which is great because it has a lot of natural pectin in it and it's pretty flavorless. It just tastes like apple juice, mm -hmm. right? So it's not a lot of flavor. And then we also, an apple cider vinegar is often used in uh, cooking, especially in the South. Mm -hmm. And so we take a bunch of apple cider vinegar, a bunch of apple jelly, fresh jalapenos, fresh red bell peppers, and we cook that for a long time, and then we blend it up. And that's how we make our pepper jelly. And there's a few other things in there, too, that you're not going to get all of. But if <laughs> you okay. wanted to make it at your house, you could literally buy a jar of uh, maybe Tabasco pepper jelly or something. And then you would just whisk in a little bit of vinegar. So probably a jar like this, like a little four, six-ounce jar. You probably just need a couple ounces of vinegar. And you would whisk it up, and you would want to that's, – that's your basic – basically what that's we're what doing. it's tossed in when that's it's what done. it's tossed so when they're done frying we drain them for a second we salt them uh, and you don't want to salt them before you roast them okay. you always salt after you roast vegetables because it pulls moisture out and makes it harder for them to roast if you mm. salt in advance so that's a good one. you're going to roast them you're going to take them out you're going to throw them into a bowl you're going to drizzle them with some of that pepper jelly vinaigrette basically you made salt and then we take pecans mm -hmm. that have been toasted which is super important you want to toast your nuts so that they have more flavor we toss them in that, they go in a bowl, and they get Parmigiano-Reggiano grated over the top. Mm. It's not the same if you buy the pre-grated Parmesan with an S <laughs> uh, that's like half cardboard dust. <laughs> like legitimately, you got to be careful. They, they got busted last year for substituting like wood chips and cardboard dust. Really? Right. But if it says Parmigiano-Reggiano, that's the king of Italian cheeses. And then if you want to talk about cheese graters, the one you need to buy <laughs> is a microplane brand. It, it's a handheld device, mm -hmm. and it's got a very fine um, tooth to it. You can use it for nutmeg. You can use it for spice, yeah. cinnamon. But microplane brand, zester, use it for citrus zest. Almost puts like a powdery. Yes. Like, it's great. feather shredded, like the finest, and it, it melts in your mouth. That is the ultimate cheese grater slash. It's, the, it's my favorite kitchen tool besides a knife. Nice. You zest citrus. You can grate. It's kind of a multi-tool almost. It's incredible. And uh, you can't replicate it with anything else. And then the off brands of them are mostly trash. Mm -hmm. And they're not like an, uh, an on brand, a microplane brand is like 14 bucks. So it's not like <laughs> yeah. it breaks the bank. Yeah. Right. You should just splurge for the real deal. Um, <laughs> but you do that over the top on a bunch of it. It should look like snow. Yeah. Because it's got just the depth of flavor that you don't get out of the fake Parmesan cheese. Mm. And that's it. You can make these at home. Oh, for man, sure. I'm nice. going to. Go back and listen to this and do it. Yeah. Uh, and Brittany, then I'll come over Brittany just it. got super excited because whenever we went with Chase and Tori the first time, we got those, and they were incredible. We were like, oh, my gosh. We already like Brussels. We do them all the time. But when we came back, we're like, all right, that's our new standard. We're going for that. But we never <laughs> could figure out that. We knew it was some kind of a pepper jelly. Yeah. But the vinegar like, is what figure is what that out. Yeah. Nice. And we went again. Me and Brittany went again a couple a month or so ago, and we came back, and we probably cooked brussels three or four times that week and every time we were tweaking we're like what is it 
So you done messed yeah. up now. I'm having yeah. Brussels for and, at least three times this week. Good. And one uh, one thing that you do in that that should also be one of your episodes in the future is toast your nuts. Mm. Toast your nuts. I important. like toasted nuts. That's Brittany, like a, Brittany doesn't like the pecans, so I eat all the pecans. Okay, in that, so. that's good. I'm a big fan. We put nuts on a lot of stuff there. Mm-hmm. We've got nuts on two of our pastas, um, you know, on Brussels sprouts. Uh, you know, I love the flavor and also the texture difference that comes with stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, before I ask you, there's a few questions I want to end on. It, it, did, we, did I miss anything that you want to discuss regarding the last year? I don't believe so. Okay. I know we... Uh, uh, and and I wasn't really sure what all you had in mind, but I uh, just wanted to make sure. Okay, to close this out, we've been talking for a lot longer than I thought, which I love, and I don't care about people listening because I'm having a blast. Um, While you're looking for that, I just want to say I could ask you tons of questions because when we went, all the use a lot of wild game yeah. or different proteins, yeah, and this is awesome. So uh, we could go for hours. I feel like just sitting around. I feel like. You know, we need another bottle of water probably to yeah, and a bathroom go for break. more time. But <laughs> um, okay, can we do – we did this in the first episode, and it was pretty awesome, and I regretted not doing a couple more. Can we do where I give you three ingredients and then you tell me what you'd make from it? Yeah, we can try that again. Okay. Are you, da- are you down? Yeah. Are man, you in the mind frame of cooking? Always. It and Carl, leaves. if you have one. I'm just, I'll just, we'll just do one, and then if, if Carl is going to think of one too. It never, it never leaves my mind. So and then I'll also – uh, also have questions about um, how to cook stuff too, for my personal uh, uh, Does it need advantage. to be one dish? Like I give him three. I, I think I just gave, and then he just said. Yeah. Go ahead and do your example. Crazy. I got one in mind already. Okay. All right. First ingredient, protein, salmon. Okay. Second ingredient, radishes. Okay. And third ingredient, I think I said, on the last one I said eggs, uh, but I'm not doing that. Third ingredient is, and you can tell how much I've uh, thought of this in advance. I'm like thinking through a bunch in my mind. What would be good? What would be good? I want to say like a fruit, but I'll say uh, raisins. Raisins. Okay. One of my least favorite ingredients. Um, <laughs> That's probably Golden raisins or, or red raisins. I have no idea. I don't you got to be specific. My cho- If it's my choice, I'm going golden raisins. Um, all right. So... This Salmon is, is this is super fun just because I'm so uneducated and my dumb ingredients make it very entertaining to watch you work. So that that's why I like this. So, so salmon knows that's a dish already on your menu. I know. Yeah. I mean, so salmon is uh, is pretty cool because it's it's super versatile. You can do salmon raw, smoked, lightly cured, seared, um, a bunch of different ways. So the salmon's the easy part. Okay. Um, and then radishes. Um, You'd have to be a little more specific, but I'm gonna assume you mean just like <laughs> exactly just like a red basic radish, yes. the little red ones with the white inside, because some radishes taste wildly different, and so you would do them different ways. There's radishes that are aggressively spicy, like horseradish. It's not technically a radish, but tastes like that. Mm. Um, and then there's radishes that are pretty mild, like a French breakfast radish, almost tastes like water, like crispy water. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> it just doesn't have a lot of flavor, right? Mm. So these radishes, you know, for an easy dish, that would be quick. Like, let's say if we wanted to call this the appetizer round of a competition or something, um, I would probably go with something like a crudo, where it's going to be raw. Crudo just means raw in Italian. And uh, golden raisins, um, I would probably plump them in some sort of a flavorful liquid. 
Um, so if you put a raisin in, in a liquid, it plumps back up some and it gets a little less chewy. It has a nice mouthfeel. Okay, interesting. We used to have a dish on the menu where we plumped them in uh, unsweet, in unsweet tea. Uh, and they would get, and they went on a, like a crispy fried cauliflower dish with, but regardless, so let's say this, we're going to do, we got to start right now and I have a short amount of time, especially I'm going to do a salmon crudo. So I'm going to, um, slice the salmon. I'm going to probably try to use the raisins a couple ways. I would probably try to put them as a sweetener in a vinaigrette. I would blend up, uh, probably, and we have to pick where we're going to go. Are we going to go like Italian crudo or are we going to go like an Asian feel a lot of times people automatically go to Asian with raw ingredients mm -hmm. because people just think of sushi, but let's go to like Mexico and okay. do this. So they use raisins in Mexico, these radishes in Mexico. Um, so we'll do a salmon crudo. Um, we're going to take some chilies, like chilies that you would find in like a Mexican red chili sauce. And we're going to make like a, probably a pasilla chili vinaigrette with the raisins and some orange and some lime, like almost like a ceviche type flavors, but we're not going to soak the fish in it because we don't want to cook it. We're going to keep it raw. And then we're going to do a quick pickle on the radishes. We're going to slice them thin. We're going to pickle them. We might leave a couple raw too because when they pickle, the they turn kind of pink. The edges fade to the middle, so you don't end up with a white radish with a red ring. You end up with like a pink radish. Hmm. Um, but we'll pickle some radishes. We'll do a pasilla chili raisin vinaigrette. We'll plump some raisins and then we'll need some texture because it's going to be all soft. Mm -hmm. um, the radishes will be a little crunchy, but you would want more texture. So you could do certainly do a nut. And if you wanted to go like really toasted, nut, toasted <laughs> nut, um, I really like toasted pine nuts with stuff like that. But also a lot of people think sesame seeds are Asian, but they're, they're used everywhere. They're mm -hmm. native to Louisiana. They're called bene seeds in the South. If you ever see Benny seed, B E N N E on a menu, they're They're all over Mexico too, mm. but toasted sesame seeds have a really tremendous flavor. So you could do something like that. And then if you wanted to tie in a little bit more stuff, you know, maybe some, some, you would have some other raw vegetables, you know, maybe some cucumber or some like shaved, uh, shallot or onion or something, but you could really tie in some excellent flavors with the, um, the raisin, the rash and the salmon, or you could go a whole other direction you could just cook the piece of salmon really well and you could do pickled radishes with that still because acidity on a dish is you have to have acidity. It's mm -hmm. one of the three salt, acidity, fat, heat. There you go. You read the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Samin Nosrat. Yeah. She's good. Um, and, uh, and her little Netflix show was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, you have to have that. So, you know, I always, if I'm looking at like three or four ingredients, one of them's going to turn into acid or be involved in acid to mm -hmm. make the dish have that because otherwise the dish just tastes flat. Um, oftentimes my critique of a dish at a restaurant is that, um, it's usually it's that there's not enough acid. Mm. Does that become like a one dimensional versus a three dimensional dish in, yeah. your, in your mind? Like in, with your palate? Maybe? Yeah. A dish can be pretty tasty. Like, you know, there's a, one of the restaurants I want to talk about that I went to that I really enjoyed. I loved almost everything on the menu that I tried. And they had one dish that was, in my opinion, so close to being a slam dunk. It just ate a little flat. Mm. And I was like, man, I wish they had just like a little bit more acid or like a little bit more something on this dish. Because it's, I, I feel like if they had a, a little grimalata 
or like a pickled something on this, this would be maybe the best thing ate tonight. Mm. Like it's so close to being perfect. Just give the extra little pizzazz. Yeah, and it's just and it, and it just changes the whole dish. I mean, talk about elevating a dish. A lot of times we're tasting, we're trying out dishes in the kitchen. Um, we taste stuff and we're sitting there and we, you know, you take a little bite and you're like, yeah, and then you sprinkle a little salt on it, take another little bite, squeeze a little lemon, take another little bite, maybe zest some lemon because lemon juice and lemon zest don't taste the same. Lemon zest doesn't actually have acid in it. It just has lemon flavor. And then you're like, maybe this would be good with maybe a little bit of this, maybe a little chili oil on it. Maybe a little heat would be good. And then you do all that. And, you know, we literally are changing the dish. And at the end of it, you go, man, how much better is this? You know, maybe it needed a little bit of salt. It needed a little bit of heat. And um, it needed something else taken off. I don't really like that on it. Let's just take that off. A lot of dishes don't make it. You know, we make mm -hmm. for um, the Instagram post I made the other day. It was the first time ever. I posted two dishes that we tried out that we hated. We just did. I was like, you don't really see these ever. But these never hit a table because we thought they sucked. <laughs> um, but we worked on them for a little while, and then mm -hmm. we were like, eh, I don't like this. And I, and I even went, I don't think it's worth pursuing this dish enough to even try to change it a bunch. Like, I, think, I just think this one we can shelve for another time. Yeah. It's just not that good. And this stuff in your head, you have to try it to find out if it's good. It's awesome when you try it, and you're like, this is exactly what I hoped it would be like. But that's very rarely the case. Mm -hmm. Usually, it takes a second try or a third try or tweaking or adjusting. And usually I'm going, I'm like, all right, don't say your thoughts out loud. You, I'm not going to tell you what I think you try this or try these two, which one do you like better? I'm not going to say what I think yet. And we'll do that with three or four cooks. And I say, what did you think? I like this one better. Why? Well, I think this kind of overpower the pesto maybe overpowers this on this one. And you go, what do you think? I thought the same thing. Like I really actually like this one better. I didn't think I would, but I like this one better. And hopefully they're thinking the same thing I'm thinking because that means we have a consensus on it mm -hmm. and we go, all right, if all four of us think that, then that's the right answer, you know? Yeah. All right. I got my ingredients and let's do it. This is something that I could totally see. I, I know how I would cook this and it would be very amateur home cook. <laughs> what I'm thinking of, they're not three crazy ingredients, brisket, carrots, and spinach. Okay. Something that's very predictable. Are you working you with a whole brisket or you have like I would a be, chunk yeah, of I would brisket. be cooking a whole brisket. Okay. And a Traeger. He would, he would be working Probably with a Traeger. Probably this weekend. Okay. He could tell you about his Traeger if you, if we're you want not, to hear we, We're way <laughs> past time on Traeger tonight. Um, so. Makes me a Traeger real Traeger jokes. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I love brisket. I, I hold it in very high regard. If you've ever eaten brisket in central Texas, uh, you will probably think you suck at cooking brisket after that. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, I used to think I had a pretty good brisket. Uh, and then I went to central Texas and ate at a place in, called Lockhart, Texas, where they have some of the oldest barbecue restaurants in the country. I talked about it in the first podcast, mm -hmm. life-changing meal for me. Was that and on your trip that, west? Yeah. Yeah. And after that, I just said, like, I didn't cook brisket for a while. Then we opened a sandwich shop in new Orleans for a little bit in the Pythian market. And we decided we we're going to do a brisket sandwich. And we used, um, I really like burnt ends. Mm -hmm. Um, we used just the fatty end of the brisket. We would buy just the fat, fat end, and we would smoke it. So what I, I, I think brisket, unless you are making um, corned beef or pastrami, brisket, in my opinion, is best smoked. Or if you don't want to take the time to do it, it's excellent ground up into a burger. Um, it's a really nice cut for that. 
um, or um, it's also pretty good for making chili, but it's kind of expensive to make chili. But if all you have is a brisket and you wanted to make it, you could. Um, for smoking brisket, me personally, um, I'm a pretty much a purist on the salt and pepper side of it. I put a good bit of it on there. But when we we're doing burn ends, um, we would smoke it for like four or five hours. We would take it out and just the ends are, they're much smaller. The fatty ends are much smaller because they're just cutting off the top and they're leaving the, the plate underneath. Um, we would take it out. We would let it rest some. I would then cut it up into inch, inch and a quarter chunks. And then I would toss it in a mixture of chili flake, brown sugar, apple cider vinegar, um, and a few other spices, smoked paprika to get a little bit more smoke flavor, which if you want, if you need one secret ingredient spice in your kitchen, it should be smoked paprika. Okay. Got it. It's a little cheat code episode nice. for your podcast and toss it in that. And then it would go back into the oven covered at that point or the smoker. I mean, covered. So no more smoke is getting to it, but it's maintaining that low and slow temperature. And we're going to go for eight more hours. And that little bit of sugar and the fat and all that, it caramelizes and it makes these sticky like brisket candy bites. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredible sandwich. I loved it. It was our second best selling sandwich. Um, and uh, that's my favorite way to eat brisket by far. Burn ins? Burn ins by far. But if you have a whole brisket, the, the other part's too lean for that. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. Well, you can I guess, only do that with the fat. So with the your brisket. three ingredients, how. If you had a whole brisket to work with, what would you do to make a feature? If I'm making a feature, feature, I'm doing, uh, so I love carrots turned into a puree. Um, so if you like simmer carrots in a little bit of cream and you throw like a chunk of garlic in there, um, and then a little bit of butter and you simmer it and you have a good blender, like a Ninja or a Vitamix, Vitamix is the best. That's what professional kitchens use, but Ninja blenders work fine. You simmer, you chop up some carrots, you simmer them for a little bit till they get tender. Some salt, some pepper. Uh, a really nice spice in there is coriander. Coriander and carrots go together. Coriander is the seed of cilantro. It doesn't taste like cilantro though, but it is. Um, you puree that. You get this velvety, carrots get so smooth and they don't get starchy. Uh, like they don't get like gummy. Like certain root vegetables, if you puree, like if you puree potatoes and you mix them around too much, they start to get really starchy, like glue, and it's gross. Carrots don't do that. You can blend the shit out of them. They give you this really velvety, smooth puree. And if it's seasoned well, it's incredibly savory. And people are like, this is carrots all the time. You blend it up with a little cream, a little butter, a little cardamom, a little salt, a little pepper, um, or coriander, not cardamom. You could do cardamom too. Cardamom and carrots great too. Either of those things. Um, the sea spices and the carrot go together. You blend that up, some burnt ends, kind of piled on top of that and then spinach i mean spinach to me is best sauteed quickly with chili flake and lots of garlic and just some oil fast so it doesn't wilt completely you should get a pan hot the garlic should be in there while the pan's heating up so it infuses the oil so should the chili flake throw a you know five pounds of spinach in there to get a serving or two and uh, right when it starts to wilt and it's done you could put it on there and if you really wanted to get fancy and use it for another thing you could or you could make like a chimichurri out of the spinach like a really herby deal that would cut the richness of the brisket so it's got vinegar and 
uh, or other herbs, some, some parsley, some oregano, chili flake, lemon juice, and then you have something that cuts the richness of the brisket and even the richness of the carrot puree. You could do a couple of things, and you could even do both. If you wanted to show off for a competition, you'd do the sautéed spinach and maybe a spinach chimmy. And if you had whole carrots, you would definitely use the carrot tops in there with the with the salsa verde or the chimichurri. Got you. That what, sounds, what a freaking that journey! Awesome. That was insane. Yeah, I so got, I'm cooking I got that this weekend, Chase. If you want to come okay, over. I'll be over. Yeah, and the Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I'll, tech, you I'll text you over. some carrot <laughs> carrot puree recipes. Um, all right, give me the quick skinny on how you cook uh, a steak. A steak. So, do you have a sous vide at home, an immersion circulator? I don't know what that is. So no. Okay. So if you don't have one of those, so what you should do is buy one of those because okay. they're only like. You can buy one for 75 bucks on Amazon. It is a thing that controls the temperature of a liquid uh, very precisely, water. So you drop a steak in a vacuum bag that ideally has flavorings in it, like butter and herbs and garlic, and you cook it to, you set the temperature to 110 degrees or 115 degrees, and it will make sure that that steak is that exact temperature all the way through. Mm. So then what you do is all, so it's, it's a foolproof method for a home cook to cook a perfect steak. Mm-hmm. Then you get either a grill or I like to use cast iron pans because mm-hmm. they have more surface area. Mm-hmm. Very hot. You open a couple doors and windows and you turn your vent hood thing mm-hmm. on and you take it. You then salt it. You don't want to salt them before because, again, it pulls moisture out. Don't salt the steak you before. You shouldn't be using salt to marinate or season a steak before, until right before you cook it. Okay. There's not like a, right yeah, before, yeah. like right as before. it's going on heat within a, within a couple minutes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. You don't want to salt something and let it sit. Like if you salted it and put it in the immersion circulator and sous vide it, you're pulling moisture out of that steak. That's not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, not the same type of deal as like if you're dry aging a steak for an extended period of time, you're pulling moisture out. It's not the exact same. That's beneficial because you're concentrating flavors, but it's because the flavors are staying in the steak. If you're pulling moisture out, you're not just pulling water, you're pulling out other flavor compounds too, mm. right? Now, if it's dry aging, the water evaporates, but all the flavor compounds mm. are still inside the steak. Okay. So you sous vide it. If you don't have a sous so if you're sous vide it, you're going to season it, then you're going to get a pan really hot, and you're just going to get a good sear on the outside. When you're searing a steak, you're actually changing the way it tastes. Um, you're causing something through the Maillard reaction, protein and sugar molecules are... Uh, are literally caramelizing and new flavor uh, profiles are forming, new flavor compounds. Things that did not exist before now exist, mm. and they taste really good. Um, if you do not have a, um, a uh, sous vide um, set up, then your best bet to me is a cast iron in an oven, and there's two ways you can do it. You can do sear first and then the oven, or you can do oven first and then sear, which is called a reverse sear mm-hmm. method. Um, a lot of people do that on Traegers. I know. Old Joe Rogan always talks about crazy about it. I just did a reverse, reverse sear. sear for the first time, and I think it was a lot better. Yeah. It so came out a lot better. Either I've way yet to is, do it good on the, the Traeger. Either way <laughs> is, is doable. Um, they're basically the same thing. Um, some do chefs you, will do go back Do you like add in any seasoning while it's in the pan, including like butter and then so baste it. And like, I, if we cook a steak in the restaurant, it will almost always be basted in butter and herbs and things like that. But we're working with a higher BTU stove than a typical home stove has, unless you have gas, if you have gas, I it's better. Gas. But if you've got like a wire ring or electric, like a glass top, 
it is not, not hot it's enough. not hot enough um so if you're doing that i mean you can get them hot enough to sear a steak but you need to leave your cast iron on there until it's smoking hot and then you're also not going to oil the pan you're going to oil your steak mm. you're going to season it um and you're going to season it aggressively especially if it's a thicker steak um because if you're seasoning a steak that's two inches thick uh understand that you're only seasoning the outside of it. Yeah. Another thing too, though, if we serve a steak in the restaurant, it's going to be sliced when it comes to your table. And most likely it will be sliced, slightly fanned out, and there will probably be a little bit of finishing salt over the steak so that the inside is appropriately seasoned as well. Cool. Yeah, salt bay style. Salt bay. Yeah, I just shake it out of my beard. <laughs> Please do not do that. Okay, no, all right. Um, how would you cook um, a delicious asparagus that's nice and soft? Okay, so asparagus. But rich with flavor. Asparagus, what's important about asparagus is to, one, make sure that you're breaking off the bottom part that's tough and fibrous. Okay. And then in higher-end restaurants, we also peel the asparagus to get rid of the fibrous outside. Not really necessary. Um, I, don't, I don't do it for myself. How much of the bottom end are you talking about? You're talking about like you get so a 12-inch asparagus. The, the, one of the main tests that people tell you to do is grab it on, on uh, like about halfway down and at the bottom and just start to bend and wherever it snaps is the natural point where you should probably be getting rid of it because the bottom's going to be too tough. Gotcha. Now you can take the tough woody bottoms and you can, if you have a good blender, you can make really great soup and stuff like that with like creamy asparagus soup or asparagus and potato soup. Like we would never throw that away at the restaurant mm -hmm. that would get put in a vacuum seal bag frozen. And then we're going to make soup or a sauce or whatever out of it. Like recently I did an asparagus pasta dish it was crab meat and asparagus and stuff. And the sauce got made out of the peels and the bottoms. And then we cut up the nice, really beautiful parts of the asparagus. And they went in the pasta dish itself. Hmm. So rule of thumb, probably a couple inches? A couple inches, yeah. Uh, the part where it's white, I'll definitely, <laughs> definitely get rid of the white part. Um, but, yeah, the test is a good measure. But I don't typically do that. I know about if it's an asparagus this big, you want to cut off couple two to two two and a half inches yeah. something like that all right but so to cook your asparagus, asparagus um i would say you cook it in two stages you want to get it in boiling water that's heavily salted mm. and you want to have some ice water to stop the cooking um this is certainly how we would do it in a restaurant um we would boil it and we would probably let it be in the water for no more than 45 seconds to a minute okay depending on how thick they are. If they're little pencil asparagus, they might only be 30 seconds. If they're big, thick, you know, thicker than your thumb, it might need to be in there a minute and a half, whatever. Then you're gonna plunge it in ice water, you're gonna let it sit there. That's gonna stop the cooking. It's gonna make it bright green. It's gonna lock the color in. And then when you wanna eat it, you're gonna put some butter in the pan, ideally good butter. Um, I all, we use unsalted butter for everything because you can always adjust salt with mm -hmm. salt. Um, butter shouldn't be salty. It's great on bread. We only use salted butter if we're serving it with bread. Um, but we don't you do a lot of that either, but get a, get a pan warm, start with a pan butter. I like to keep it really simple with asparagus, some shaved garlic, like good fellas shaved, mm -hmm. but we use a knife, not a razor blade, <laughs> but, or don't please for the love of God, do not use the garlic in a jar. Okay. The chopped garlic in a jar. It just, it's not even close to the same. If you put that in a pan and you put fresh garlic in a pan next to it and you smell them both, it's a night and day difference. Okay. Um, and if you have a microplane, you can zest garlic 
into the pan. You can take a whole nice. clove of garlic and turn it into a paste immediately. And you don't end up biting through any big chunks of garlic and it just melts because it's so fine. It just melts into whatever you're doing it with. Nice. So I would say melt your butter, microplane some garlic in. When the butter starts getting warm, uh, not, not burning, you want to go this over medium heat. You're going to put the asparagus in, salt, pepper. I wouldn't do anything else. I would let there, sit there until the asparagus starts to get like a little bit of brown on the edges mm-hmm. and the butter starts to get a little brown and nutty and then you're done. Cool. That's to me, that's perfect. And then if you want to finish it with a little squeeze of lemon, that's nice too. Yes. Not necessary, day. but there's the acid I was talking about right, that you'll right. elevate the dish some. Or right. if you like want to get a little fancier, you could do that with like, you could do uh, par- parsley, uh, lemon juice, and like capers even, uh, and kind of shake that around in the pan with the rest of the butter and pour that over the top. And it's a very classic way that they serve all kind of stuff, and especially in New Orleans. Cool. Love it. Did you have one? No, I'm just really ready to eat. <laughs> For no, real, seriously. Way okay. Past dinner time. Um, tell me about a uh, n- new dish you have coming up. Anything special? Um, Anything you've been thinking yeah, about? Yeah, so we, we actually just worked. So we're, our focus right now is lunch. We want to really push lunch business. And that means that we need to appeal to people that are trying to eat lighter, mm-hmm. healthier um, foods and also um, stuff that. Uh, so we're working on two new salads, two new like sandwiches and some soups, things like that. And one of the, and I, I'm, you know, you're listening to me talk, but from looking at me, I like salads, but they're not my favorite. Mm -hmm. Unless they are like, I don't want a salad to be all filler. Like I don't want it just a big bowl of lettuce Mm -hmm. with some stuff. It serves its purpose, but it's not exciting. Right. I don't mind eating them, but as a chef, I don't feel anything putting a nothing to the salad or like putting like a lettuce on a plate with some you know a, a croutons and some onion onion slices and some tomatoes that does nothing for me yeah and so if we're gonna make a salad i would love to make a salad that somebody tries and goes that's delicious it's unlike anything i've had and um but it still meets the criteria in their head of a salad so we worked, I said, I was like, all right, we've never had ranch dressing on our menu. And we get asked for it all the time because we're a pizza place mm-hmm. and white girls love dipping their <laughs> pizza in ranch dressing. And um, we just said, all right, if we're going to do a ranch, it has to be different. So how can we make a ranch that we want to use? And, and this salad is going to have, I said, I've been wanting to do a salad that we use roasted carrots in. And so we said, okay, roasted carrots. Carrots and ranch dressing go well together. We're going to roast carrots. When you roast carrots, they like warm spices. So I also, I was like, I want to use, a, so we're, we actually use a little bit of coriander in the ranch dressing. We use smoked paprika because nice. they're roasted in Secret the wood weapon. oven. And then we also put some fennel, which is typically used in like Italian sauce and stuff. We ground that up and we put that into our version of a ranch dressing. And then we roasted carrots in our wood-fired ovens. So they get a little bit of a smoky flavor. They get a little char on them. Um, and then, so the dish is basically the dressing goes on the bottom of the plate. Mm. The carrots kind of get piled on there. There's some arugula, um, some blue cheese crumbles and, um, what do we put? Pickled, pickled shallots. And there's one more thing that's jumping out of my head right now, but we, we nailed the other day. We nailed it. We got it done. Everybody in the kitchen tried it. 
and we, we it was our third or fourth iteration of it and everybody was like yeah sweet that's the one that's delicious sweet. and my sous chef i make fun of him all the time because he like never eats um and he was like did everybody try this yet <laughs> and i was like yeah and he just sat and there and like ate the whole rest of the salad <laughs> nice and so when he does that i know it's for yeah. sure a winner like yeah. if he just sits there and crushes the whole bowl of something it's a winner so that's cool because it was a dish that we wanted to come up with and we made it work and it wasn't we didn't have to force it mm -hmm. like it just started coming together mm -hmm. and by the time we got done with it and then we made we ran it as a feature that evening to see how it went to get guest feedback and stuff and everybody loved it Sweet. it's beautiful too right it's like the carrots are bright orange and they really pop on the plate and it's tasty and it's you haven't had anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's a bit like, that's a rewarding part of it. Mm -hmm. If you see it right down the street, it's not nearly as cool for us. Cause it doesn't feel like we created anything, you know? Right. Um, and that's part of what we, that makes it fun for us to do. Like when we nail a feature and we know that it's unique and cool and different and, and most importantly, delicious, then that's, that's something to kind of like celebrate, you know, for sure. Cool. I got a quick one. Yeah. Uh, have you ever been surprised by something that you and the other chefs put together that you're like, there's no way this does not sell out, you know, before eight o'clock tonight. And it's just a total, like in nobody likes in the <laughs> beginning. It's not that people won't like it. It's that people won't order it. Right. If you do something that's too adventurous, like you have to know your clientele. Yeah. True. Um, right. But you also have to, even just the way you word things, right? Like, I did a venison heart tartare. We just call that venison tartare, right? <laughs> they don't need to know it's heart. They're not going to know when they're eating it. It's not like it's organy or livery or anything like that. We're going to call it a venison tartare. We still sold zero of them that night. And this was recently, right? And it was delicious. And, but I, was, I had gotten in because we're testing all these dishes for this wild game dinner. So I'd gotten some uh, venison heart in. And it wasn't a big deal to me if it didn't sell. Um, because I knew it was kind of a reach, but I wanted to see, but you know, recently we did antelope ribs and I was like, this probably isn't going to sell, but we sold out, Dang. you know? And like, the thing is you have to get your, your weight staff behind it too. They have to be convincing. And so we let them, ideally we try to let them try stuff so that they know they can go, look, I tried it an hour ago. It's delicious. You got it. You should really get it. And we also, if we know it's kind of weird, we'll usually put a discount on it. Not necessarily, Hey, it's 20% off, but we're not going to charge you what we ought to charge. If we know it's kind of weird because I'd rather you just get it and trust me and go, yeah. wow, that was really good. I, I didn't expect antelope to be that good or <laughs> I've never had that. Um, you know, so we've gotten better by it. it used to be a thing where we would try really hard on a dish, <laughs> but also a lot of people when you're new, um, like we're new, everybody just want to eat pizza mm -hmm. and they wanted spaghetti. Now that we've been here four and a half years, I have a lot of regulars that have been to five or six of our wine dinners and they know that we do stuff outside of our regular purview. And then on Fridays when we do features, some people, they're messaging me on Thursday. Are you, are you going to post the features soon? Cause they're ready to come in Friday. They want to see what it is. And they're going to see if they're going to come out and get it. I have one couple and their kids that come almost every Friday and get every feature we have. Nice. You know, there's two or three of them because they're regulars, but they like to try new stuff. And so basically they get to come to a new restaurant every Friday is the way they view it. It's the same people, but it's, it's new food. 
And so they get like one or two things they like and they try two features that they've never had before all the time. And so that is a, um, yeah, we definitely have made stuff that didn't sell and we've definitely eaten it all, <laughs> you know, like, all right, who's taking this stuff home? Um, but we got a lot better at knowing what our audience will tolerate. Mm -hmm. Um, and every now and then we push the envelope and sometimes we surprise ourselves, you know, um, you know, Friday night, our staff absolutely killed it. We sold out of all of our features, which was, we had like 35 or 40 portions to start between three different features and they crushed it and everybody loved everything. Nice. And it's cool because like even my AM cook who doesn't work at night, who helps me prep it all. He's texting me like, Hey man, how'd the features do tonight? Cause he helps me come up with the stuff. And so it's a, and it's exciting when you sell out of that many features. It's like, heck yeah, that was awesome. Like all the stuff that we made this week, we created it. It's a new thing. We, we were happy with it. And then not only were we happy with it, people loved it. And the plates are coming back clean and people are going, Oh my gosh, that should be on the menu. It's so good, but it's not going to be usually some, I mean, things have happened where they became a menu item, uh, that started out as a feature, but it's pretty uncommon. Cool. Oh, that's the auto alarm for the building. It's going to auto set in a few minutes. Is it going to keep doing that? Yeah. For like 12 more minutes. And you can, I don't know if people, can you hear the chiming people? I Maybe. I, I'm not seeing it. Maybe. Possibly. I will. No, we'll, we'll, we're wrapping it up before uh, then. So let's pick back up with that. Then. With what? Wherever you want to pick up. The no, we're leaving this all in right here. This is all. Well, in the I'm sorry for everyone that just had to <laughs> hear me mumbling because my mic wasn't by my mouth. Um, all right. Last question to to um, finish it off is I mentioned at the beginning, but and we talked about it a bunch. But uh, I'm looking forward to you putting out some episodes. Uh, of your uh, forthcoming podcast and probably social media posts if in a perfect world. Yeah. But what's like a couple uh, topics that you're going to hit right up front? Um, the first one we're going to cover probably is uh, the, the definitions of service and hospitality. Talk about the difference between the two. Um, I think it needs to be understood to understand the frame of mind that I'm in when I talk about okay. a restaurant. Sweet. And when I talk about stuff that we deal with. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, restaurant finances in the sense of uh, uh, like free bread. There's no such thing as free bread. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people sometimes are like, I can't believe you charge for bread. I'm like, look, lady, the lady, the people that gave you a <laughs> loaf of free bread charge you for it, too. They just didn't put it on the receipt. They jacked the price up on something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And so stuff like that, that I, I would wish the public would grasp better. Some of those topics are going to come up because a more informed public is a, is a public that enjoys dining out more. If you don't feel like you're getting gypped off, like realistically, I'm not jipping you off. They are because if you don't eat the bread, you're still getting charged for it. Mm -hmm. But if you come to my restaurant, you don't eat the bread. You don't pay for the bread, right? You just pay for the food you ate. Mm -hmm. You don't pay for the other lady's bread who got four, four baskets of it <laughs> because that's really what's happening. That price is getting spread out to everybody. Mm -hmm. So some stuff like that. We'll definitely talk about um, restaurants I eat at and go to and want to hype up because I think they, they need to be talked about um, and be talked about in, by a person who's excited and passionate about it, you know. Um, so there's a few of those already that I've kind of written reviews for that'll, nice. get, that'll get hashed out. Nice. And then stuff that just comes up in a day. Like I'm sure, yes. you know, 
there'll be topics. I try to keep my like social media. Uh, <laughs> I try to keep it under control. It's mostly just pictures of food, stuff like that. But occasionally, I, like this past year, once I posted, please stop telling me how um, like me forcing you to wear a mask means that like I don't believe in freedom. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm just trying to keep my business open. If you had any respect for people, you would just do that too. It's not a big deal. It's nothing to do with your freedom. Mm-hmm. Stop telling me that you're standing up to tyranny. Like I'm sure George Washington would laugh out loud <laughs> if he thought this was your example of that, right? Like this is not the same thing. We're not in this position mm-hmm. where you're standing up to tyranny by refusing to wear a mask into my restaurant that I'm required. Like, it's just silly, right? I would have yep. loved to have gone in depth on that a little bit just from the standpoint. And look, I had several people that cussed me out and stormed out the restaurant when really? I insisted they wear a mask. Wow. And then two of those people later apologized through channels when they were like, look, you know, I kind of realized I was being an idiot <laughs> and I'm sorry. I was having a rough day. And I really and love I, your pizza. And I get it. <laughs> you know, people have bad days. Yeah. And, and sometimes people react poorly because of that. But I told everybody on our staff, I was like, listen, I mean, I had a guy, his whole family basically yelling at me while they're walking out of the restaurant, yelling profanities at me. Like this place is terrible. His dad, 70 year old dad is like trying to fight me, like bucking up to me, like call it. was like, what are you going to do if I don't leave tough guy? Stuff like that. And I'm like, like, bro, I don't know. I'm going to call the cops, I guess. Cause I'm not going to punch an old man, but just so you know, if I ask you to leave, you have to do that. This is my business. Yeah. You have to leave. If y'all refuse to wear masks walking around, y'all can't be here anymore. You're a liberal, you know, blah, blah, yelling, cussing his wife's. To, we don't like your restaurant anyway. <laughs> we hate it. It's terrible. The food's garbage. I'm like, you know, they spent. Why are you here? <laughs> they've been there, you know, whatever. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. Whatever. I don't care. You know, and they finally leave the restaurant and they, they're like standing in the doorway. I'm like, please leave. Please get out there. Blah, yelling, we, this place is never going to make it. You'll, you know, blah, this and that. And then I'm standing at the front door and I'm, I'm wearing a mask and I'm just, I'm like, man, I don't think I've ever wanted to swing on a customer before, (laughs) but this was close. And also like a 70 year old, like he's just like trying to get me to hit him is wild. (laughs) And my whole staff's, you know, watching and, uh, you know, then this, this young couple's trying to come in the door to eat while this is all going on. And they walk in and I have to go from like, get out of my restaurant. Don't ever come back. Fine. I don't care if you come back to, well, welcome to Maribo. How are y'all doing tonight? I'm so sorry for that. And they're like, no, it's good. Uh, we, we have our masks on. And I was like, excellent. And then like I walk back up the little three steps in the dining room yeah. and the dining room busts out into like a round of applause nice. because everybody saw what was going on. And it's just so, there's so much ridiculousness mm-hmm. that happens in a restaurant And a lot of it too is, you know, at least those people made their opinion clear to me. I would rather that than the person who finds 12 things to complain about on Yelp after they leave Mm -hmm. and didn't tell you anything the whole time they were there. Mm -hmm. And trust me, we asked you how everything was at least once, probably three or four times. And if it wasn't me, it was two or three other people. Mm -hmm. And for the people that go, yeah, it's good. And they leave and they go, I can't believe they charge for... Oh, they don't offer free because right now we don't do fountain drinks. We don't do refills. We mm. just do cans and stuff because we feel like it was it fit with the idea of trying to be um, more sanitary, not bringing cups back and forth to the kitchen, not less less contact. 
I can't believe they don't offer free refills. Well, you know, I'm like, okay, well, if you would have told me that, I just would have given you another Coke. <laughs> I don't care that much about the dollar, Yeah. you know, to, to piss you off. If I'd known you were pissed off about that, mm-hmm. um, I would have just given you another Coke. And hopefully you would have calmed down enough to enjoy your dinner because who needs to be upset about a dollar fifty Coca-Cola? Right. You know, but you can't please everybody. And that's probably one too. Like the customer isn't always right. Um, there's another good one. Yeah, for sure. You know, we want, we want to make them feel good, but there are times like there's some stuff that people ask requests to do on dishes. And I just say, no, like, mm. I'm not going to do that. Somebody wants to know if you can put, uh, the pizza white sauce on their, on their, this dish. And I, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Tell them if they want that, this is the closest thing to it. And it'll actually be delicious, but no. I'm not doing that because I know that will not taste good Mm -hmm. and they're not going to like it either. They just think they will in their head, but they're not. Mm -hmm. So no, I'm not going to do that. And so that happens occasionally. And, and usually, um, you know, and even if if the server's like, they're really, I'm like, I'll go talk to them. I'm not going to be an asshole about it, but I'm gonna go, look, man, I know what you're, I think I get what you're going for, but trust me, that's not good. Yeah. And I don't want to sell anything that I don't think is good. It's like we have people that have special requests. I had a lady come the other night, older lady, allergic, highly allergic to garlic, onion, anything in the allium family, right? But she really wants the crab pasta we have. Well, that has a bunch of that in it. Mm-hmm. It has caramelized onions whipped into the butter. It has letter pureed. It has garlic in it. You can't have that dish. And she was like, can you just make me something close to that? And I was like, you trust me on it? She said, yeah. So we just made her something like that and we brought it out and I checked on her and she was super appreciative. She feels special. We went out of our way to do it. I'm happy to do it as long as you're cool and you're going to give us a little bit of trust. Yeah. But like, this is what we do for a living. Like one of my favorite, like a joke, I don't, you don't ever get to say it, but in the back, somebody's like, can you do this? I'm like, excuse me, what do you do for a living? (laughs) Oh, you said you're an accountant. So not a chef. (laughs) Okay, cool. I was just checking because I don't tell you how to do my taxes. <laughs> you probably shouldn't tell me how to do this. This is all I do every day. I feed people. I cook food all day long. And, I, and that's the, one of the things, too, that food is something that everybody has an opinion on, even mm. though they mostly don't know much about it. Mm. They pretty much only know what they like and don't like, and they don't even know that. I've said for you, like, you don't like Brussels sprouts. No, you don't like gross Brussels sprouts. Right. You know, I know people, I hate blue cheese, but you can make them a dish that has blue cheese in it, and they're like, well, that's delicious. It's, yeah, you don't like uh, bad food. Neither does anybody else. <laughs> right. And there are people that are obviously so very true. picky that just don't like anything. But for the most part, people like food that's really well prepared, that's delicious. And you can turn their, change their mind about almost anything. Mm, that's cool. You know, and that's fun too. Yeah, for um, sure. Specifically, like if a person tells me, if a person close to me says, I don't like this food, I will 100% make it a challenge to make them like that food. Nice. At least in one way, shape or form. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. And the creativity abounds within you and with the passion that's really cool i um we have to stop yeah and i've uh, this has gone like twice as long as i thought it would and it was twice as awesome as i thought it would be uh and i hope i didn't ruin either hope we didn't ruin each other's schedules by staying so long carl thanks for Thank being you, here carl. carl um and so this was your this is your second appearance on my show and I'm looking forward to the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth appearance uh, on my show because we could talk. I, I could hear, listen to you talk forever. And if you're listening to this right now, please go searching for Gavin's podcast. Follow him on Instagram. If you can't take the heat.
That's the name. That's going to be the name. Yeah, it's pretty dope. Um, and if you can't find that yet, then find him on Instagram because he's going to post about it whenever it's out. It's going to be soon. And it's going to be awesome. You probably can't pick the heat. True. You should just get off the internet. <laughs> uh, cool. Gavin, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. It was thoroughly enjoyable, I think, from one end of the spectrum to the other. All right, Carl, I'm wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, Chase. Thanks, Carl. And thank you for listening to this episode. Thanks again, Gavin, for driving to Baton Rouge and hanging out. Um, like I mentioned at the top, if you haven't yet, definitely go over to Covington and visit Gavin's restaurant and eat some delicious food. Look him up on Instagram, Chef Gavin Job, and look up his restaurant on Instagram, Maribo, M-E-R-I-B-O. And as you heard in this episode, you should go search for If You Can't Take the Heat, Gavin's new podcast that I'm super excited about. It's going to be short, nothing like this, which is extremely long. It's going to be short, five minutes-ish or less about some topics that Gavin wants to talk about and is passionate about, food, restaurants, and all the above. Um, I'm going to enjoy listening and watching that. So you should check that out. It's going to be on all podcast platforms and on Instagram. If you can't take the heat. Thank you again for listening to the Chase Doesn't Know podcast. I really appreciate it. If you would be kind to leave a review, subscribe, share it with someone, that would be awesome. As always, not required, but greatly appreciated. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>